Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the historical High Mary Jane main event. In this corner, we have Adam, the professor of puff. In this corner, we have Chris, the student of smoke. This week, we will be discussing the history of world wrestling. I'm just going to, it's not world wrestling entertainment to me. Yeah. It's world, it's the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, buddy, if you think that it's just those two things, I got I got different news for you. We got a learning episode this week, folks. We're turning the reins of the historically high horse over to Professor Adam as he teaches me the history. Something that has near and dear to his heart has got its fingers deep inside him since his childhood. Uh, this, this is my shit. This is kind of a dream episode for me. Uh, I know that we... Maybe it just feels like it in my mind with these learning episodes. I feel like I've hit wrestling kind of hard. We got some good reaction to Andre. I think we got some really good reaction to Iron Claw. Andre was bigger than wrestling, my friend. Yeah, hey, he truly was. Um, uh, to go along with just this history of the WWE, if you're fans, awesome. Thank you for being here. If you're not fans, I'm going to try to make this as interesting as possible. And I really do think it's very interesting. I, I'm not, I haven't dabbled in wrestling in a long time. But this kind of stuff, because it's not just wrestling, it's something that like came from almost like a circus sideshowy type thing and is now like a billion dollar worldwide enterprise. Oh, yeah. And it's literally, I'm not cheapening it. It's it's acting athletics. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful show that gets put on. Um, there's different points in this. I just little spoiler alert um most of the time to fall asleep i'll put on an old episode of wcw nitro or monday night raw to go to sleep just because it's almost like it's soothing because it's something that i remember i remember the intro music i remember the title scenes and everything like that does it ever wake you out of your sleep when you like you're listening to a match and then you hear the music of another wrestler look like they're coming out during the middle of the match you hear the glass shatter and you mm-hmm. know the stone colds showing up so mm-hmm. you gotta wake back up yeah, um, I, I'm going to try to do this in a little bit of a condensed form. Um, if you hear me mention something or maybe not mention something, don't think that it's because I forgot it. It's simply just because I can't go into a whole lot of detail. If I were to go into detail on everything that I wanted to for this WWE episode... I wouldn't see my family for the next like two or three days. Yeah, I, I would have to call in sick to work multiple days for us to be able to record all this. Um, so just understand there's going to be plenty of stuff coming in the future. Um, there's going to be for sure a full episode that's dedicated to the Monday night wars. A lot of just the crazy weird things that have happened in the WWE and some of just the most ridiculously funny storylines that you could ever imagine. You got this twinkle in your eye. I'm excited to get in this episode. All right, let's lace up our boots. (laughs) Let's pull on our trunks. Let's baby oil the fuck out of ourselves and let's get in to the WWE. months can take a toll mentally seasonal affective disorder is a real thing 
We believe that mental health is essential health. If you're looking for a little mind tune-up or want to explore a little deeper into your mentals, go see our friends at MindMend. Listen, their products are geared toward helping you put your best foot forward when it comes to dealing with adversity and also celebrating the wins in life. Microdosing can improve your mood, increase your creativity, reduce anxiety, and increase your motivation for a deeper desire for self-understanding. Macrodosing can help you get in touch with those confusing emotions, stimulate a cathartic emotional release, increase your empathy, and approach your problems from new and different angles. Their pre-majored capsules and dosing guide will make the experience you are looking for easy to understand. The lemonade mix is also simple to use and made with basic and organic ingredients for a delicious, thirst-quenching experience without any of the fillers. Go to mindmenmushrooms.com and use the promo code HI for 15% off the entire site. That's mindmenmushrooms.com, M-I-N-D-M-E-N-D, mushrooms.com, and use the promo code HI for 15% off their entire site. Enjoy life more using microdoses with big results. All right, take me back. Paint me a picture. Make me feel like I'm there. I had a tough time figuring out where to start here because there is a certain history of professional wrestling. Uh, today, we're just doing WWE, WWF, um, kind of their lure and how they got started. Uh, way back before this happened, we're talking like 1800s. Um, they realized in carnivals, along with things like strongmen, different kind of sideshows. The lobster boy and the bearded lady. <laughs> yep, th- those guys were their buddies. But if you wanted to attract a crowd, you wanted to bring people in, you would have some sort of a test for them, some way to get them involved in what you were doing. Um, a lot of them were things like rest or um, interactive circus. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's, I guess it's more of like, test yourself against somebody. Um, there were like body slam competitions where you would see if you could fight being out of a body slam, anything like that. Was it like fight this carny? That that was what the sign was. Hey, are you tougher than this guy? Basically kind of things. Uh, promoters realized back then for the circuses and the sideshows that you really didn't want to have guys that were just tough guys doing it because if you, beat some poor person up that was just watching the show, you probably weren't going to have them come back and everybody be a little bit more horrified. And the guy that you're having out there do the fighting or do the wrestling or anything like that, he's going to get his ass beat up too. And he's not going to be able to do it. Well, I would see from the standpoint of uh, a money standpoint, money-making thing. If you walk in there and it's the a huge fucking guy no one of average size or below is going to be like, yeah, I can beat that guy. You're only going to get people that think they're the biggest and toughest. You're you're limiting your clientele mm-hmm. basis by making it a guy that maybe just looks normal but can you know fight the fuck out of anyone. You're basically getting all of those big guys and all of those average guys and maybe some of the smaller guys being like, yeah, I bet I could take him. Well, and kind of along those lines, too, you need somebody that's able to defend themselves, but at the same time, not hurt the people that he's fighting against, because it's just not going to be a good look. Um, They sort of develop different types of wrestling. I believe one of the first ones that they used was called Catch Wrestling. It's got this three-name name that just doesn't make any sense. Um, Catch Wrestling is kind of just a good way to put it. There was a guy named Mike... three-name name? Yeah, it's like catch, carry, something. Cradle? 
Maybe catch carry cradle wrestling. Yeah. Okay. Just something along those lines, but just more of a way to where you can use holds mm-hmm. as far as like instead of just punching somebody or anything like that, you're going to use a headlock on them. You're going to use contortion of joints, anything like that to get the desired reaction. Instead of knocking somebody out, if you can just make them submit or say uncle, you're going to have a better outcome. I don't know if you know this. Does it have any type of like inspiration from like Greco-Roman wrestling? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it just there's so many different kinds of freestyle wrestling and all that kind of stuff that you see in the Olympics. And this is sort of something that it was born out of, but it had to be born out of a way to where you could always make it look like something was happening. Yeah. But the, more fluid than just yeah. like the guys that are locked up uh-huh. in hold. Yeah. Almost like a dance. Um, there was a guy named Mike Hackenschmidt. Hackenschmidt was kind of like the first wrestler's wrestler. Uh, he would win these grappling competitions. He would win catch wrestling competitions. And it's sort of, he would travel and he would wrestle back then they didn't have any like legitimate tournaments to do anything Mm -hmm. about it. So if you won a tournament, you could call yourself the champion of the world. When in all reality, you might be like the best guy in the state or the best guy in that competition. But if you have nobody else to challenge you, you can just call yourself a world champion. So there could be 50 world champions across the country. Um, kind of like how we say the world series, but it just uh, takes place in the United States. I, I hate that debate so much. Because the best players in the world come play here. I get that, but you got to understand, World Series kind of, if it's World War One, World War Two, it's not just like, oh, this just stayed in Germany. Yeah, but if you put everybody that plays baseball in the MLB on one super team against everybody back in those countries. Agree to disagree, sir. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> There's just no way. Uh they started to see this as a pretty viable business because those were the people that were getting the big crowds at these events that they were having at the sideshows, what have you, that were going on. Um, the other thing that they needed to do was they needed to figure out a way in which they could still make the product look as authentic as possible while at the same time being able to understand the outcomes because you needed a way to make sure that your guys were staying safe. And if you were just running on pure emotion or anything like that alone, you're going to get some guy that's going to accidentally hit somebody too hard as far as like wrestling each other. So this already is transitioning from, and again, I'm not disparaging it, but this is already transitioning from competition where it's not a predetermined outcome. It's based upon the skill to more of like you refer to it like a dance where it's predetermined to get the most entertainment value out of it. Yeah, because you can have this is when the work is it is that the term the wor- a work? Um, yeah. There's I think we talked about it a little bit. There's is it something storylines. Yeah, there, okay? there's something called a work. A work is something that's basically prefabric. Fuck me, prefabricated to have a certain outcome. Uh, a shoot is where all hell breaks loose and it's real. Like it's something that wasn't predetermined that just broke out. Someone falling out of the Raptors. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting that kind of a deal. Um, so these guys that would travel around in these sideshows would start to promote these wrestling matches. They had to still make them look real because these, they still needed people to think that what was going on in front of them was actually going on in front of them. So what I'm to understand at this point, they basically are taking these guys, like you're talking about everyone calling themselves world champions. These guys that are winning in these like small areas, are they starting to bring these guys together and then starting to move them around, have them fight each other? Uh, usually it would just be like a troop, 
So like uh, a sideshow would have two or three wrestlers that would come on and do like a 10 minute match. Whereas back before, like in the Hackenbush days and a couple of the other guys, they would have like two hour matches to see who could submit the other one. Okay. So it's something to where you could actually like be able to put it in a show and be like, Hey, you guys are on in 15. You're going to wrestle for 10. Then we're moving on to the next segment. Something to where they could just kind of fit it all in. And this goes crazy for a very long time um, into the 1900s, early 1910s, and that kind of a thing. It's just gaining popularity, gaining popularity. I don't know why, but my mind kept imagining this in like the 60s. And I'm like, man, this would not seem very entertaining in the 60s because there's so much other stuff going on and everything. But the fact that this is already something that's happening back like before like the 1900s or whatever, that's kind of crazy that it's like, oh, yeah, this would be like... This would be something people hadn't seen before. Our version of this in current day would be like wrestling a bear. <laughs> like it's exactly it's fun to watch. You might but, have seen a uh, like a saloon brawl uh-huh. and guys just punching and swinging or shooting each other, but you've never seen like big dudes like grappling with each other. Uh, and that's where it can sort of get boring. And that's where it. They were fun events, and back then when you really had no reference point, you're like, oh, God, those guys are really going at it. Like, this Mm -hmm. is a a real fight that's going on. Not understanding that both of those guys are going to jump into the same car after and drive to the next town Mm -hmm. or jump into the same circus tent and sleep there that night. Not to get, well, maybe together together, but not always together. Um, So we move on into kind of the beginning of this now that we've laid the groundwork. Uh, the CWC, the Capital Wrestling Corporation. Uh, there was a wrestling promoter, this guy named Toots Mond. He was a member of something called the Gold Dust Trio. Toots? Toots. T-O-O-T-S. Okay. Real, this guy looks like he could take a punch. He, If you thought 50s wrestler in your head, it's you, you would pretty much be spot on. I Thick don't, neck. I'm going to have to Google this because I don't know what I'm supposed <laughs> to look at for a 50s wrestler. But Toots was a member of something called the Gold Dust Trio. The Gold Dust Trio had kind of helped start to build out the parameters of these sort of wrestling corporations. They were training guys. They were working with them. They kind of started to learn the business of being able to put on like a full wrestling show, like from start to finish, building the rings, bringing people in for advertise or advertising it out on the street and kind of starting to make it its own entity instead of just being like a sideshow off of a circus. So this thing literally survived as a sideshow for like 50, more than 50 years. Cause I'm just going up to where you're talking about it in the early fifties is when they formed this wrestling corporation. Well, the CWC was just one of many. Correct. But like to even say that before it starts to evolve, it's still the, just like you think about, like in probably like, you know, before the 1900s, these are small towns that like get these traveling acts. They're always think of Tombstone, like when the actors yeah, come through the town yep. and put on the play, uh-huh. they just move on to the next town. They do this. But the fact that that was, the, that was something that survived all of that changing into like more of a modern civilization is like, no, there's still these guys out there that are putting on like, like it's like physical drama is basically what it is. Instead of going and seeing a play, you're seeing like an action-based play. Uh, There's kind of an ebb and a flow to wrestling. And I didn't really realize this till you said it, but it it being born of the kind of carny atmosphere where you're traveling from town to town every night, there's this sort of reckoning that traveling across the country is never going to work out. So if you can set up shop in a territory Mm -hmm. and you can work like two different States and do like eight different cities and just travel that circuit, 
you're not going to be spending a whole lot of money on travel and breaking down rings and different things like that, or finding rings to rent out or anything. You're just going to be able to work those territories. If you have an actual following there of people that show up every time, then you can start adding a little bit of a storytelling element to keep these people interested. So this is just right before, uh, maybe not right before, but this is at least within what, 20 years of Fritz von Erichs. Or what, what, I can't remember what his real name was. Yeah, uh, Atkinson, Jack Atkinson. Okay, so this is literally like, because what you're describing to me sounds a lot when we were talking about like the story of like the Von Erichs, mm-hmm. is that now you're starting to get territories and there's going to be like these mercenaries traveling between territories and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, essentially, this is kind of the, the precursor. So you have the CWC, you have something that was created called the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. And it was just like a conglomerate. Copy, copy written before uh, Ice Cube. Uh, Ice Cube got a hold of it. Yeah, I don't. Maybe theirs was like Nestlers with attitude or okay. something yeah. instead of NWA's version of it. But prior to the NWA, there was another kind of National Wrestling Alliance that didn't last very long. Uh, there's a company down in Mexico called CMLL, and they're actually the longest running wrestling company in the history of wrestling. They, I think, were around since, like, 1930, and they're still going fairly strong. Full, like, luchador style and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Re- yes. Mexican wrestling down there, it's... I'm looking at them. He, there's masks in here, yeah. so everyone is aware. <laughs> yeah, j- just to show maybe how deep I am into this, I have wrestling masks of luchadors that I really enjoy. Um, Why aren't we wearing those right now? My head's too big. Oh, okay. I might put one of those on after the first yeah, bathroom we, break. We can make it happen. Okay. But this National Wrestling Alliance kind of starts to be able to lay the groundwork for these guys working together to be able to, like you were talking about, share talent back and forth beneath each other or between each other. But at the or same beneath time, each other. Yeah, or, or beneath. Based on current events <laughs> that have happened in the WWE and Vince McMahon, under each other also probably seems very plausible. Yeah. Um, and they're just kind of mapping out their territories. CWC was a Northeastern company. Um, so you're talking about like New York, Pennsylvania. They dip down, I believe, as far as Virginia and Washington, D.C. area. Okay. Are we talking like also like Vermont, Massachusetts, all the way up? Yeah, but mostly the bigger towns that they're hitting because okay. the higher population, the more okay, people you're getting. Sense. I forget that it's all still based. This isn't the show that it is. It's not uh, headquarters. This is they're having to work this territory. No, and kind of their territory is their headquarters. Um, Tootsman meets a boxing promoter named Jess McMahon. And Jess McMahon has been working the boxing scene for a long time. That's where this kind of, it's almost like an amalgamation of all these different things. Because boxing promoters, if they couldn't get by just working boxing, they would reach out and try to find other things to promote. Boxing and wrestling have always kind of gone hand in hand. I don't know if you would say that boxing... there's the argument that boxing is scripted too, or at least predetermined. I don't believe so. But if you can sell a boxing match, you should be able to sell a wrestling match pretty well. I believe there have been boxing matches where the outcome has been determined due to like, I don't think it was scripted, but there were predetermined outcomes mm-hmm. to those fights. Somebody yes. taking a dive. Yes. So Jess McMahon, that name might sound familiar. That is the grandfather of Vincent Kennedy McMahon, Vince Jr., Things get a little weird with the way that McMahon's work because there's Jess McMahon, who's the grandfather. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jess McMahon's a grandfather. Um, Vincent J. McMahon is the middle one. 
Okay. And then Vince McMahon Jr. is Vincent J or Vincent K McMahon. Okay. So we'll just go Vince Jr. Vince Senior, even go. though they're not technically juniors and seniors. It's just easier to gotcha. to go that way. Um, their first show takes place January seventh, nineteen fifty three. Wait, uh, you have to share. This is getting off topic. I'm sorry. You have to share the same middle name to be a junior or a senior. I think so. First name, man. Is it? Yeah. So it's Vince Senior and Vince Junior. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess that works. Um, first show, January 7th, 1953. Jess McMahon would pass away basically like later on. It was like a year later he passes away. Um, as soon as he passes away, Toots needs somebody new. Uh, enter his son, Vincent J. McMahon. They decide to go into business Vince together. Senior. Vince Sr. Yep, Vince okay. Sr. Um, Vince Sr. and Mont have a pretty good understanding of what they need to do. They join the NWA. They find it beneficial because they were able to get title defenses because back in the day, the biggest crown that you could get was the NWA heavyweight championship. How many people were a part of this? Like how many other territory? Was this like a central body? Uh, they had like a central board that was made up of all the owners of these different promotions. Okay. So this is what allowed essentially like, it was almost like a, a commissioner of a league. Yeah. I'm guessing like trading, this is where like talent traded and stuff like that. Well, and the way that it would kind of work would be this board would get together. They would decide which territory would get the champion and then kind of their traveling schedule as far as where they would go into these different promotions. It ends up that the CWC gets a ton of sway because they're playing in the biggest cities. They're playing in New York City. They're playing in Philadelphia. They're playing in D.C. Whereas all these other promotions that are spread out across the country are still playing in their big cities, but their big cities pale in comparison to the size of New York City. Now we're talking like the thing you would see in Iron Claw, like down in Texas. There are those kind of small, independent, like family run, like mom and pop wrestling. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the CWC gets a lot of sway. Uh, Vince Sr. really had an eye for talent, and he was kind of a shithead as far as there were wrestlers that said that you would go in and talk to him about a raise, and you would come out still making the same amount of money, but he would at least make you feel good about it. (laughs) I I see these. Okay, I'm only basing this. I did watch uh, a good spell of uh, WWF Raw and all that kind of stuff. I'm a... What generation would the D-Generation X? Attitude Era. Attitude Era. That was that was my jam. Um, but just knowing also in the news and everything like that, I see the boxing promoter, Vince Sr., being the kind of guys that are making a lot of like backroom deals and not like guys that are on the up and up. They're looking to make a buck. It's not – does that make sense? Like kind of sleazy is what I'm trying uh, to get at. You can't – uh, this should come as a surprise to nobody. I don't think there's any wrestling promotion that's clean. Everybody's got a little bit of sleaze to them. And I think a lot of it comes from this carny sort of upbringing. Buddy, it's meat market. It's, 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 deal, it's dealing in the flesh yeah. is basically what it is. Uh, one of Vince's biggest ways that he would ingratiate himself to the talent was he was one of the first promoters to start splitting the gate with the wrestlers. So instead of just paying them a flat fee to come in and wrestle, he would say, hey, if you guys promote the shit out of this and we bring 5,000 people in here, I'm cutting you guys off a piece of that gate. I'm not just taking that money for me and then distributing what I see fit for you guys' thing. incentivizes so, them to do more shit. Yeah, yeah. and Makes instead sense. of a flat fee of 200 bucks, if you guys bring in an extra 1,000 people, you're going to be getting 300 bucks. 
So there was a, an emphasis to really put on a good show and to really bring the crowd into it. Um, being the largest market in the CWC or with the CWC, like I say, their sway in the NWA was very, very heavy. Um, a lot of times back in the day, the NWA would put the belt on somebody that they would call a shooter and a shooter's like, you have a background in wrestling, you have a background in the martial arts. So just in case you showed up to a territory and some guy got it in his mind that he was going to go off script and try to take the title from you. You were able to handle your shit and oh, you were able to fuck. still beat him. Yeah. So it would turn from a work to a shoot really quick if you tried to, what they call, go into business for yourself. So there were guys that were amateur wrestlers that had enough of a background that if I'm any- still wrapping my head around this. I know that <laughs> just sounds simple, but like you had to be the guy, like if you had the belt, do you think they ever got someone that got the belt and didn't have those skills? And so they were like, okay, well, you're the champion now tough shit now you actually have to learn how to fight i think back then they were looking for the guys that knew what they were doing and because they'd be natural athletes being yeah. used to the punching motion uh-huh. the kicking, like stuff like that yeah hey, you could bring them along quicker and they would be a better draw because they could put on a more convincing fight there you go um one of the things that the nwa also did was just in case you wanted to get selfish and keep the title if you were supposed to drop it they made you pay them a twenty five thousand dollar deposit so if you didn't show up with the belt, they would just keep that money. I was going to ask you about that because when you said that the CWC, what was it stand? Sorry, what did it stand for? Capital again? Wrestling Corporation. Okay. Because they had a lot of sway. I'm assuming that like this governing body was had almost had like dues, or they got a percentage of like money made because that would then give them sway. So that makes sense with the twenty five thousand dollars. They do have some type of financial. Uh, yeah, monetary it, amount at stake. It's kind of like having a a plan B in case the champion yeah. decides not to show up and keeps a belt. They run into this problem pretty quick with the CWC. Um, kind of the way that it was working out, there was uh, the CWC was built on wrestling, but they were more of a fun show. Like the shows that they were putting on had more storylines to it. Their wrestlers had a lot more character development, and this is where we enter the Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers. Now, I say the Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers, just a little sidetrack. Buddy Rogers, excuse me, was the original Nature Boy. Ric Flair actually almost ripped off like 90% of the gimmick. They even had the same, Buddy Rogers had the finishing move, the figure four. And they actually had like a wrestling match at the end of Buddy Rogers' career where Ric Flair almost won the gimmick away from Buddy Rogers. Oh, I was going to ask, like, had enough time passed that this character had never been seen, that a new one got to, but like, it was literally like, because I'm retiring you, like a Highlander situation, like you kill them, you chop their head off and you absorb their power. Yeah. Rick Flair was basically like, <laughs> I'm putting you in the figure four and I'm absorbing your character into me. Uh, pretty much. Okay. I don't think I ever heard Buddy Rogers let out a good woo, but I, at the same time, Rick Flair was a very natural talent. He was, I have such a hard time believing that. <laughs> He's a very good, like if you watch Ric Flair matches, he's a very good storyteller and a pretty good wrestler. He never looked it. No, because he would always pull shit like he would fall outside the ring or just any sort of weird theatrics. But when it came time to wrestle, he knew how to wrestle. Uh, So Buddy Rogers ends up becoming the champion of the NWA after the CWC's like, we want Buddy Rogers. Everybody was like, nah, he's not a great wrestler. He's very flamboyant and kind of odd, but... 
we're just not going to let it happen. The CWC is like, well, we pull in like 70% of the revenue for the NWA with our cities, so we're going to go with Buddy Rogers. So Buddy Rogers ends up being the champion. Um, he carries it around for a long time, and there's kind of pushback with the NWA, like, okay, he's had it for long enough. It's time to switch it back out. Yeah, everyone wants a piece. Everyone wants a piece of the pie. Yeah, and he started to travel less because the CWC, having the title, would like to defend it in his territory or in their own territory before it came about going to other territories because you could always make money selling a title fight. So if you kept it in your region, you would be able to make more money off the gate. The NWA says, no, you have to be able to pass this belt around. You have to be able to go to our territory so we can make the money off of it. Finally, there was enough pushback that the NWA is like, all right, we're going to be in Canada. Buddy Rogers is going to fight Luthez and Luthez is going to take the belt off of him. And they're like, ah, shit. Buddy, are you cool with losing that $25,000? Buddy's like, fuck no. That's my $25,000. Like, well, we paid you for it. He's like, no, 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 no. It's my money. I, I'll drop the belt. So um, he ends up dropping the belt to Luthez January 24th, 1963. Part of the fun about learning about this is I just get to imagine and make up these guys in my head <laughs> with no predetermination of what these guys actually look like. It, did you look up Buddy Rogers? No. He looks like he almost looks like a Ric Flair that was stung by bees. <laughs> like, a very similar look. But the CWC was pissed about this. They were really, really mad that the NWA basically threatened them with taking this money in order to get the belt back. Which that was but that was that the was the plan. That was the deal. Okay. Yeah. So how uh, how dare you do what we agreed that you would do <laughs> should we do what we're doing? <laughs> They end up walking away from the NWA. Uh, they change from CWC to the little talked about WWF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. I like the world, yeah, WWF. Just too many W's, and they'll they'll fix that later on. So the WWF branches off from the NWA. They come their own independent area. They get to do their own version of a world heavyweight title. And you just had Buddy Rogers have his run with the NWA title. What do you do? You send Buddy Rogers to a tournament down in Rio de Janeiro for the WWWF Heavyweight Championship. Against who? Well, this was the deal. Was That was the build that they were selling to all their fans. In all actuality, there was no tournament that happened down in Rio de Janeiro. They just chose Buddy Rogers. They chose Brazil because back then there was no way that you were ever going to get news from Brazil. So they use this tournament in Rio de Janeiro two times. They use it for the um, world what title. Was, what was the explanation? Like, how was there a world championship down in Rio? Like, no, he was you, going to get you, the belt back. Uh, Rio de Janeiro could have been bumfuck Egypt. I understand that. What was the whole <laughs> point of them sending, like, by winning this tournament in this place that no one is going to hear news from, he's coming back a champion? Yeah. He's coming back as a champion that won this tournament, but they didn't want to put on a tournament. So they based this fictional tournament in an so area. So instead of just being like, hey, we're our own thing now. This guy was the previous champion. He's now our de facto champion. Got to earn it. Okay. You got to earn like it. Like fighting through, in a fake tournament in through, Brazil. Through okay. a fake tournament right. in Brazil. They use this when they introduce the Intercontinental title too. Is the this same. how you felt during the Lord of the Rings episode? Just Where your mind is just going through all this because this sounds like a fucking TV show. Oh yeah, it's this is a fairy tale. And the next best part of this, um, I think you'll really enjoy because I really enjoyed it too. Buddy Rogers won this tournament down in Rio de Janeiro. Of course he did. The world heavyweight champion. You're gonna 
put this belt on this guy and he's going to carry your promotion to stardom. You're going to be bigger than the NWA. You're just going to be the top place ever. We get one month in. Buddy Rogers goes for his first title defense against Bruno San Martino. Uh, Like two weeks before in preparation for the match, he has partied so much and done so many drugs that he has a heart attack two weeks before this match with San Martino. So what do you do? Buddy Rogers is still trying to come back from a fucking heart attack in the 50s. So you go ahead and you send him in that match against Bruno San Martino, but you cut this match as short as humanly possible because that guy is still recovering from something that more than likely should have killed him, that he wasn't in shape to have in the first place. But you send his ass out there and you have him drop the belt to San Martino. (laughs) Did he live? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he lived. Okay. Um, So Bruno becomes a world heavyweight champion. I wouldn't know if you're making any of this up or not. If you're making any of this stuff up, bravo, sir, because this is entertaining as shit. You can't. You really can't. Um, San Martino becomes the champion May 17th, 1963. Was he, like, also popular? He was huge. Okay, so he was, like, maybe the next up-and-comer, the next guy in line. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Vince didn't really like him because he didn't feel like San Martino had the personality. Great wrestler. But he didn't think that he had kind of the personality to be able to carry the championship belt. They do end up going with him. Uh, They believed in him so much after this that he actually holds the belt for seven years, eight months, and a day. 2,803 days he held the World Heavyweight Championship belt. So that's the record, right? That's the longest title, uh, the consecutive title holding in professional wrestling is Bruno San Martino holding the title. So... The thing seems to get passed around a lot these days. Yeah, and this is so much of old wrestling where you would have super long title reigns. You would be like a mythical figure. Yeah. Like no one can remember when Goldberg came in. Oh, yeah. And he would just go in and spear someone. 157 and 0. Yeah, but he would just literally come into the ring sometimes and spear the guy. Then do, was it the jackhammer? Uh, Yeah, he'd spear him, then jackhammer him. Hit him. And then as soon as the bell rang, just roll out of the ring and just walk back. And those were, they're called squash matches. They make your champion look super duper strong. That's what I'm saying is like, that's how they had to then build up a figure like this. If you're like, this guy is unbeaten in seven years. Well, and it only makes the title that much more prestigious because you had to beat a guy who's held the belt for that long. That's like edging. Like, when is he going to lose it? When is he going to lose the belt? And eventually he does. Uh, January 18th. He won the belt May 17th, 1963, and this is these dates just shock me. He loses it January 18th, 1971. He loses it in another decade. <laughs> was it, was he just like Michael Clark Duncan in the green room? I'm like, I'm tired, boss. I, like, just, I, my time has come. San Martino was just, he was a, a big, big, big man. He wasn't ready to retire or anything. No, no. Oh, okay. He actually holds it again for so a very like, long just, time. It is time. Yeah. Okay. But uh, the way that they do this is he drops the belt to a guy named Ivan Koloff. Now, San Martino was the biggest face hero. I, I think we talked about this in a couple other episodes. A face is always going to be a good guy. A heel is always going to be a bad guy. And the way that they kind of figured out how to make this all work was they would have face runs for as long as humanly possible until they kind of got boring and it was kind of vanilla. You always knew the outcome eventually. 
So you would have him drop it to a heel. A heel would then get all the heat. They would end up winning their matches in a dirty fashion. Nothing would ever look clean. And then you bring in a new hero. Yeah, you, okay. you bring in a new hero gotcha. to, to vanquish yep. the, the villain. Um, Ivan Koloff was modeled after a Russian. I could I could tell from the can't, last name. Yeah, can't, the can't dates really. match up as far as there's still Cold War stuff going on. Uh-huh. Our feelings about that. So yeah, the bad guy would be yeah a Russian. I, and they held this event at Madison Square Garden. So they did this all the way up until Rocky Four. Um, yeah, was it? Yeah, Rocky Three was Mr. T. Rocky Four, Ivan Drago. Okay, I'm gonna have to ask you about that because which one was Hogan in? He was in the Ivan Drago one. So he was Thunderlips. Three or four? Four. Um, San Martino regains the title back in 1973. Uh, he carries it till April 30th, 1977 again. And this is where shit gets real. If you thought the Buddy Rogers story was a tough guy having a heart attack and then coming in and wrestling again, uh, April 26th, 1976. So before he drops the title, San Martino fractures his neck in a match that he had. He, there was a, I believe... Fuck me, I should have written his name down. Uh, it wasn't Bill Watts. I don't remember who it was. I, I have a question. Mm-hmm. So at this point, this is in the 70s. Yep. Is this televised like regionally? Yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. So these matches, are they still traveling around, but they're also being televised at these places? Or are they just taking place in one central place and then being televised? Um, for the most part, they would go to larger cities and they would do... Uh, a full card, but the way that they would do it, and I think we're going to get to it a little bit later, there were other promotions that were doing weekly shows or bi-weekly shows. Yeah, how often were they doing these? Like these, these matches? I think like- they were like around once a month. Okay. Because just the way that they would build them, and we'll talk about their structure, but they would tour less, but they were in bigger cities so they could afford it. Mm-hmm. They could put on a different kind of show where they could tape all of the matches. Mm-hmm. And then they could either release them live on TV wherever they were, or if they were sending them, like if they shot this at MSG, mm. it would show up in Boston like a week later. Okay. So it would kind of go to these other areas. It also makes sense because at that time, like trying to save up all of your production value for one big show, mm. get everyone's anticipation up. Because you can justify being like, well, they only come through this area once every three months or something like that versus like, no, they're coming through this area like on a weekly show or like yeah. every, yeah. Yeah, so you would have TV tapings, and the way that they did it was kind of brilliant because you would see it on TV, and they would put on a good enough show because they would make their money off the gates at the events. Mm-hmm. That was their big money maker. They would make a little bit of money off of advertising and shit the like that. The exact opposite of now. Well, yeah, and this is back at a time before cable happened. So you were just getting like regional affiliates on like the three channels that you would get. Um, so, yeah, back to San Martino. He drops the belt and. 1977, April 26, 1976. San Martino gets his neck fractured in a match on a botched move. Neck fracture. Pretty big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Two months later, he comes back and has a rematch with the guy because that match obviously had to be stopped because he fractured his freaking neck. So there was some doubt that he had lost the match? Well, they just called the match at that point, but they needed a rematch because they needed to settle it. Uh, the rematch that they hold is actually a dark match that never makes TV. It's just something that was there for the fans. San Martino ends up winning that one. They called it one of the greatest matches that uh, they had ever seen. San Martino ends up going to Vince Senior. He's like, man, one of the greatest matches never seen. Yeah, never seen. But it was they called it. They it was in the running for match of the year that year. 
Um, of course it was. They had magazines at this point, so there was like wrestling news from different promotions mm-hmm. that were making its way around in print. Um, never seen. But I, I I just feel like there's a little bit of <laughs> bump up to this. Well, and you got to think two months after a guy fractures his exactly neck, exactly how exciting could it be? Yeah, a great match. But uh, yeah, San Martino comes into Vince Senior. He's like, man, I'm I'm wearing down. I, I fractured my neck. I'm now it's I'm tired, boss. Yeah. yeah. So he ends up dropping the belt April 30th, 1977. Uh, in the 70s, like we were just talking about, the WWWF would use these large venues in these large cities to make these gates massive. And as they were doing that, if you weren't involved in a storyline that was going towards a title, you weren't in a race or anything like that, they would still, even though they weren't big fans of NWA still, NWA had a lot of respect for Vince Sr., so Vince would still do business occasionally mm-hmm. with these other smaller it's wrestling. It's still beneficial for everyone. Yeah. yeah. And when the NWA would have issues, they would go to Vince as like the deciding vote. So they still understood that his business acumen was second to none. Yeah. They were just pretty pissed that he wanted to keep the belt and then branched off and got away. Um, the slower schedule that they would run, the way that they would do it would be they would put the main event in the middle of the program. So if you do like three matches, then main event, then you would do another four matches after that. The four matches were to start building the storylines to go for the next event. Oh, okay. So it was like you would build your storyline, you would have your main event, you would start building towards the next event that you were going to have, and then you would have one like fun match at the end that probably wasn't going to be taped, or if it was taped, it would just be shown on a different date. He's fighting a bear! (laughs) Yeah, it, we can't legally televise these folks, but you're in for a treat. Uh, they would show, you know, something that the fans would be like, "All right, this was worth our money for." We we might not have seen a clean championship match. There were different ways that they would do championship matches back then too. A lot I think of the that times, was probably the birth of the what did they always call the matches that they used to that they had the women do in like the early 2000s and 90s, where it was basically a bra and panties match. Yeah. They were, well, they would do them like two out of three falls. So that way you could set it up to make it look closer than it really was. So like you could have the heel win the first match. You could have the face win the second match. Then during the third match, there would be some sort of kerfuffle, like a count out or something like that to where it would put the end in doubt. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't always be the face winning over the heel. They could push the program for another show Mm -hmm. and then finally have a blow off match, like in a cage or something like that to, to finish off the storyline. Um, the triple WF's main event back in the day was something called the showdown at Shea and it was held in Shea stadium, New York. When you say main event, do you mean like what would be considered WrestleMania? Yeah, this was their, their, okay. Their big yearly event. Uh huh. Um, not really yearly. They held it in 1972, 1976, and 1980. Oh, even more exclusive. Uh, yeah, but the gates on these, 22,500 in 1972, uh, 32,000 in 1976. This was the event when Antonio Inoki fights uh, Muhammad Ali. And this was the event where the San Martino dark match happened. But the Inoki ali match ended up in a draw because anoki was wearing cleats for some reason i, I don't know why antonio anoki a the most massive job and ali technically fought in the wwe or wwf yeah yeah um i think he's in the wwf hall of fame too 
I but, think you would put him in there if you yeah. got the chance. But Antonio Inoki was the biggest star in Japan. He was, to this day, I think still probably the most recognizable. Either him, Giant Baba, somebody like that, was a Japanese legend. So at this point now, there's worldwide cross-promotion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have your wrestlers going on tour in Japan over there trying to draw. They're called Gaijin when it's a foreigner that comes into Japan to wrestle. Yeah, they use that in, I think, Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift. I don't know. I'm so ashamed <laughs> that that just came out of my mouth and that I knew that. Yikes. Yeah. I, I got a mind like a steel trap yeah. for stupid shit. So, yeah. Uh, 1980. Okay. At this point, is the WWF bigger than the NWA? Uh, yeah. Okay. But the NWA, the conglomerate, you're still going to have more people showing up to those events, but there's nothing really cohesive because they're still their own territory. They're the biggest independent then. Yeah. And oh, yeah. so at this yeah. point, being like the biggest independent one, are they? is there a bigger company in Japan? Um, They're just more nationalized. Like I think by this point, there's CMLL in Mexico and then shit. There's okay. got to be, I think there was another one at the time in Mexico, but in Japan, I believe there was just one like nationalized wrestling company. Are they the biggest now? Uh, oh, WWE? Yeah. By far. Okay. By far. Okay. Japan has New Japan, All Japan. Um, I believe Pro Wrestling Noah is over there. So they have different promotions that have broken up over time. But I think back at this period, All Japan, I think, comes around mid-80s. So they're kind of leading up to it. But regardless, 36,295 in 1980, that's a pretty big crowd to think about in 1980. You're filling up Shea Stadium. You're filling up a baseball stadium. Yeah. Like, that's that's a pretty damn big deal. Um, right before that happens, 1979, we dropped the wide from Worldwide Wrestling Federation to just the WWF. Thank God we can now refer to it as just <laughs> WWF. Okay. Well, they said that they did it mostly for marketing purposes. Like, no shit, dude. That's I'm uh, excited for us to be able to drop the yeah, extra oh, W. Yeah, you're telling me. I keep, when you keep saying, I think you're stuttering. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm about to rattle off a uh, website, uh-huh. www. Yeah. Um, 1980, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, Vince Jr. ends up, founding a company called Titan Sports with his wife, Linda. So there was kind of this deal where Vince Sr. wasn't going to make Vince Jr.'s life really any easier. He was kind of like a, you're going to forge your own way in this world mm-hmm. type deal. Um, Vince Jr. was a part of putting together the Ali promotional match. Okay. He was a Shockingly, a beginning partner in Evil Knievel's jump over the Snake River Canyon. Really? Yeah. Like, he, he was the one that put the deal together before backing out of it because he didn't like Evil and the investors that were in okay. it. But he kind of helped shape those kind of events. So he had promoting in his blood. Well, I was going to say, he had probably worked around this company or for the company growing up. This isn't exactly when he's 18 or 19 years old. Like, I'm founding Titan sports with my new wife. Like I'm assuming he's had, he's gone to school. He's already been through bankruptcy once. Oh, um, he, okay. There you yeah, go. He's, yeah. he's lived a life inside the, uh, aforementioned before WWF inside capital wrestling, triple WF, whatever you want to call it. He started off as like a referee mm-hmm. and kind of started to build his acumen for understanding the business inside the ring. He loved wrestling. he, he was a, a big, obviously later he gets in the ring himself, mm-hmm. but he knew that he didn't have the chops to wrestle. 
So he starts out as a referee. You kind of learn the psychology of the ring. The two biggest factors for a good match, excuse me, outside of the performance that's going on inside the match, you need a referee that knows exactly where all the spots are going to happen, where he needs to be, when he needs to be distracted, how he's going to count, if it's going to be a fast count, a slow count, if he needs to end a match because of an injury. This may sound stupid. Do they do they just have a scripting for the match and so they know what the other one is going to do, they know how that move is going to look, or do they do rehearsals? There's two ways that they can do it. They can either pre-plan a match, which is like you're talking about, they go through rehearsals, they go through all the spots, and you have just a complete understanding of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. The other way to do it is called on the fly. And on the fly is where you're calling it in the ring. You have a shorthand for like backdrop, leg drop, Irish whip, anything like that. So the referee has to be in concert with understanding what's going on and have eyes on everything at the same time. You've watched a lot of wrestling when you see a big move that happens and you'll see the referee go down and make sure that the person's still conscious or mm-hmm. still able to fight. That's him whispering in his ear, you good? And the guy will either give a yes or a no. He'll give a pound on the mat. If it's good, he won't respond if it's bad. So you're always making sure that you're checking the competitor's health in this situation while understanding that the finish is always going to be predetermined. You know when it's going to happen. You know it's going to come after a finisher. If you need to count fast. That's what I was, yeah, the point of knowing like, so in those situations, the guy that's going to be the ref is probably there watching their match to know what it's supposed to look like. He'll be a part of the choreography. He'll go through the, if it's on the fly, you know the start, you know the finish, you just make it up basically in between. So you have to kind of do your own thing and kind of fall into the flow. I'm seeing the sausage get made here. Yeah, referees are extremely important and undervalued when you talk about wrestling. Uh, the second most important thing after the performance is going to be the commentators. Commentators are going to be able to set the flow of a match as far as if it's working fast. They're going to be able to point out exciting moves. They're going to be able to kind of sway the emotions that the people that are watching it are going to feel just based upon what emphasis they put. Same thing, JR, old, good old JR saying that somebody's getting whipped like a government mule. Mm-hmm. Like it elicits the imagery in your head of what that would be. Be like, oh shit, that's that's pretty important. Yeah. By God, he broke him in half. Nobody ever gets broken in half in a wrestling match, but mm-hmm. it's that kind of extreme it it doesn't exist anywhere else it's where it's not proper when i say it's not proper announcing it's not like at a baseball game where you're when you're watching the match that's what you're primarily hearing Mm -hmm. is the commentary you're not i mean you do get crowd noise and everything like that and i assume the commentary would also be the the loudest thing because if they are communicating inside the ring and all that kind of stuff you're not going to want that to be heard or anything. So like, of course, but like that's, you watch any other sport. Yeah, there's commentary and everything, but I feel like wrestling is almost has this hyper focus on it. Well, in commentary, you're not hearing the announcers in the arena, but if you're watching it, it almost makes you feel like you're there Yeah, because you're hearing everything called that's out That's true. For you. Okay. So Vince starts out as a referee. He moves into commentary kind of surprisingly enough. there's this weird deal where there's some owners that feel like they need to be in the back coordinating everything. But Vince always felt like as a commentator, he could be out there watching everything that Mm -hmm. they had just decided play out. So he has this understanding, this acumen for the business. 1982, he purchases the WWF from his father 
and from Toots. I believe Toots maybe had left at this point. And what Vincent, was Titan Sports? Titan Sports purchases. I know. What was Titan Sports? Just a, a basically like a conglomerate that they had created to buy it, like a, a corporation. Okay. It was a corporation that bought C or bought. Um, so it didn't make it didn't like make its money into another thing and then absorb. Now Vince and Linda had owned. I think they owned some sort of arena. It might have been like before Nassau Arena, whatever was there. Okay, and they had turned that venue into something profitable, okay. and then were able to make enough money or groundswell enough money. I think they may, had to make three payments to Vince Senior, and there's always kind of been some questions as to how Vince rustled up. I want to say it was like a million bucks. So a lot of money back in the 80s for some guy that just went through bankruptcy to come up with to buy the WWF. But he buys this machine. He buys this well-oiled machine that his father ran to where they had a lot of money. They were a household name in their area. You start to see where cable TV is coming on board to where you can start to reach a new audience. Can you imagine how weird this would sound to somebody on like the West Coast where this really didn't have any reach at the time? And they're like, yeah, some guy just spent a million dollars to buy a wrestling company. And they're like, what do you fucking mean a wrestling company? <laughs> like, like people just wrestling each other? Well, they there were smaller territories that were in L.A. Everybody understood wrestling. They understood territories. Okay. But to know that there was this juggernaut out there is gotcha. kind of where things change. Okay. And to go away from Vince Sr.'s idea of like... You try to treat everybody as good as you can while still being a, a stingy asshole promoter that goes behind people's backs to Vince Jr. being like, fuck all those guys. We're building a monster. Um, this is considered the golden era of wrestling or the golden era of WWF is when Vince takes over and his dream is to make this the premier promotion, make this something that everybody knows across the country. One of his first moves was he would actually pay syndicated TV stations mm -hmm. in local areas, he would pay for airtime. So he was going out there and instead of a company approaching him being like, Hey, we like your product. We'd like to put it on there. Here's the deal that we'd make. He's like, no, 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 I have enough money. I'm going to pay you guys to put this on the air in these areas. So that way everybody in your area is going to see my product that pissed off everybody in the NWA because those guys were making their money on those same TV channels, trying to promote their product when Vince is like, eh, I'd rather you guys get eyes on my shit and stop dealing with them. Um, his next step was to move into those territories and hold like one-off uh, events mm -hmm. in their areas, which again was like something that Vince Sr. would never do. He, he was a man that had a very loose moral trajectory, I think, but he had a code of ethics that he really wouldn't break. Vince Jr. is like, no, man, you're my competition. We're not friends. We're not buddies. We might do work from time to time. One of the other things that really made, I think, Vince Sr. respected was, if you remember back in the Andre episode, Vince Sr. was a booking agent for Andre. Oh, yeah. So whenever Andre would go to all these other promotions, it would be because Vince had a working relationship with him that he would allow Andre to go down and work there. And usually that would be a trade. There was a guy named Bill Watts that worked down in Texas, and he said that he never had any trouble working with Vince Sr. because he would come up and work for Vince and his promotion. Mm -hmm. And instead of being worried about getting back to his to be the major draw in his because he ran it, but he was also a big star, Andre would be down there. So he'd be making better money wrestling matches in the WWF, and then he'd have Andre down in his territory, and Andre would be making shitloads of money as what Andre was, just a, an ATM of mm -hmm. sorts. So 
Vince cuts that stuff off. Vince isn't Vince Jr. isn't Andre's booking agent anymore. He's basically at war with these other places. Um, his idea to put the wrestling programming on uh, these channels in these other areas pays dividends because these people have seen the promotion already before. So when they come down to these new territories, instead of being some unknown you wrestling company fan base, you have an established yeah, fan base. You have people that know what your product looks like. It looked better than a lot of other places. They had uh, like multi-cam setups, whereas everybody would just have like a hard camera on the ring. Mm-hmm. So you'd be able to get different angles. Um, they had more of a pageantry about them. Everything from it was bigger. Yeah. It just yeah. looked clean. Yeah. Like whereas excuse me, everybody that was starting with a camcorder from a guy walking around the ring, the WWF started with like actual cameras set up around everywhere. It's a show. Yeah. It's now, it's becoming a show, like a staged show. Exactly. So, it's a bad time for a sell right before a drink. Um, The biggest win that Vince Jr. had, I think you could say arguably ever, was he had lured somebody away from the AWA, which was another company that branched off from the NWA to form their own talents or to form their own area and to be another independent company. 1983, they signed the Hulkster. Terry Bollea, Hulk Hogan, is signed away from the NWA to an exclusive WWF contract. So was that a company that was like down in Florida, in that area? Uh, I believe the AWA was like Florida, Alabama... Probably like around the Gulf, okay, down there. Uh, Florida had FCW, they had Florida Championship Wrestling, so I don't think it was in Florida. I know Hogan was born in Florida, but I think he was working more of the South at that point in time. Um, in 1983, Hogan still has a deal with Japan to go to a tour in Japan, so he's not coming to the WWF yet. But he knows Vince knows as soon as Hogan gets off that tour, he's headed to the WWF. Uh, the WWF at this time had this guy named Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund was, uh, he's a very funny looking man and he wrestled for a fucking long time. We're talking about, this is back in the eighties. Backlund had held the title for 2,135 days. So another just insanely long run. They're doing, they're doing the same trope. Yeah. He's still sticking with the try and true method of like the hero gets to have the belt for all this long. And then all of a sudden a villain comes mm-hmm. in he loses the belt, but then guess what? A new hero will rise. And Backlund was a hell of a wrestler. He had an amateur background. He's like I say, he was he's very funny nowadays, but mm-hmm. back then he was like crew cut, just very proper. He would wear like silk leisure suits, but they were really, really bad leisure suits. And he was a very ver- or a vanilla guy. He didn't really have a personality. So basically they're setting him up letting him know like Bob time for you to step aside the new guys in town yeah you had a huge run we need somebody else to carry this company um he ends up dropping the belt to the iron sheik the iron sheik why would you not have guess what (laughs) relations with russia have cooled we don't have to make that the villain anymore who do we not like right now well who are we who are we currently in conflict with it's the middle east perfect Find me a fucking character. And the WWF had this weird thing for a long time where I guess it was wrestling as a whole. There was somebody named the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik was from Toronto, Iran. He was actually Iranian. That's where he was from. That's where his home base was. Then there was the Sheik. The Sheik was his other character was General Adnan. Uh, He was actually from Iraq. 
He was full-blown Iraqi. Uh, you remember the story about Andre going over to Iraq to fight for Saddam Hussein? Yeah. He went with the Sheik over there. Okay. That was the guy that almost got Andre shot by Saddam mm-hmm. if Andre beat him in the match. Yeah. So, two different Sheiks. So, wait, wait. Uh, which one do we know? Which one is the most well-known? The Iron Sheik, right? Um, The Sheik, I think, was a bigger name in his day, but the Iron Sheik had... Like, he was the one that had the Twitter account that everybody loved following, the uh, I fuck you Twitter account. Okay, I'm going to have to look at the difference between these guys. I'm trying to rem- Which one had the black mustache bald? They both did. Okay. God, I mean, damn, it. God damn it. They they could have been cousins. If, okay. Uh, one was just a Iraqi, one was Iranian. They couldn't do Sheik one, Sheik two. They had to add just like a name. The Iron okay, Sheik, gotcha. yeah. Um, so the Iron Sheik ends up pulling the belt off of Backlund. You have a foreign Ooh. heel... <laughs> you had a foreign heel that would come into the ring. He would praise Iran. He would pray. This was, I guess, maybe not too far back in the Islamophobia. Like, if this guy's sitting in the ring praying, it may be like a nice act for him to do. But everybody in America is like, shows like it's hilarious. <laughs> like, before you knew what was going on, you would just boo the guy because everyone else in the crowd was booing him. Mm-hmm. You had no idea why the adults were booing. He was just supposed to be the bad guy and everything. You look back and there's like, this company like has like no shame. No shame. Like every trope and stereotype we can possibly use as entertainment, we're going to do it. Uh, are you familiar with a wrestler named Chief J. Strongbow? Chief J. Strongbow is the guy that in Big Daddy... Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> I thought you were saying the name really fast, and I was like, "Well, there was a guy in Big Daddy that was like, yeah, he put the guy in the sleeper hold." Uh-huh. Yeah, Chief J Strongbow sleeper hold. Uh, you would think Native American gentleman, right? Because he's Chief J Strongbow. Mm-hmm. He's Italian. Okay. He was an Italian guy that they wanted to give because they didn't have a. Oh, a, but he played in, in a it, Native American. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but that that was the deal. And the WWF is very famous for having almost like just offensive gimmicks. At one point, the Iron Sheik being Iranian was brought in to work with the actual Sheik, and he was supposed to be his Iraqi friend. So you're even mixing you're, you're mixing those two nationalities. You're bringing it's, nations together. It's shit like doing. that, yeah. yeah. Uh, even to the point, and this will be have to be an episode, if we launch a Patreon and I can do these wrestling ones like we're kind of talking about doing, or if you guys have interest in, let us know. Um, there's a character, I believe, in the late 2000s, early 2010s named Eugene. Mm-hmm. Eugene was a... Uh, mentally disabled wrestler. I when you said that, that's what clicked into my head. Played yeah. by a fully able-bodied mm-hmm. man that Vince just somehow created in his own mind. Just extremely offensive stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you have Iron Sheik. He comes in, he does his thing, he riles up the crowd. Like I said, he was doing something as simple as just praying to Allah in the ring or whoever he was How praying to. How dare you worship your gods when yep. it has no, when it affects us in no way whatsoever. Yeah, he knew that he could get heat just by praying because yes. he's talking Listen, to... Listen, this was, a, this was not, a, not a thought-out idea. He's like, How would I just go do this and see how the crowd reacts? It's like, oh no, you're going to do this. We've done polls and we've found that this is the most offensive thing that someone can do in the ring at a wrestling event. It, just speak in a different language and point at the, there you go. Point at the heavens. Uh, so the Sheik becomes a natural... Or natural aggressor against Holly or Hulk Hogan. All I'm now hearing is the "I need a hero." <laughs> I'm holding it. This is what I imagine is coming up. Well, you should have been hearing. Dun, 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 was dun, that the song dun, that came dun, out from the very? beginning? I don't think it was. I it. 
think that song was probably born uh, maybe around this time. I mean, it could have been. I would say it was probably early 90s when that started, but I, I don't really remember. Um, so yeah, the Sheik ends up dropping the belt like a month later to Hulk. And so the Sheik won the title December 24th, 1983, drops it January 23rd, 1984 to Hulk. Hulkamania is born. This is how it all starts too. Cause the Sheik puts him in the camel clutch. Just that's his finishing maneuver. Then you see the arms start to shake and tremble. Then you see Hogan push off the canvas. You the see the crowd him, starts to he gets yeah. he starts getting the crowd yep. into it. They give he, him his strength. He by goes cheering. into the state of Hulkamania and starts shaking. The Sheik's still on his back. He backs him into a corner, slams Sheik against the turnbuckles, body slams him, hits the big leg, gets the pin. Very quick match, but everybody goes nuts. How so he was wrestling over in Japan. Had he come back and had any buildup to this, or was it just like they start promoting this guy that's going to be the hero, and he comes in in his like first match and beats the Iron Sheik? Well, he had worked for WWF before, but okay. just not like under contract. Okay, like he, I got you. That's okay. That makes sense yeah. because why would they go after him unless they mm-hmm. they knew he was a viable? They gotcha. knew he was a huge star in AWA, and they had enough money to it's where all, they could. It's all yeah. clicking. Yep. So they were already introduced to Hogan. They kind of they didn't know the Hulkamania gimmick, but. Hulk at that point, I want to say they build him as like six eight, three hundred pounds, and I think in real life he's probably somewhere around six six, but still three hundred pounds. He had the twenty four inch pythons back then. He was just a massive hill of man. Yeah, when you watch fucking Rocky four and you see him compared to Sylvester, so I think that's kind of a very close height disparity and size disparity. Well, and that was another big draw for WWF because this was after he had been in Rocky. Oh, so okay. he was already a movie star at that yep. point. So he has a lot of cred already. Um, you have your star built up. What do you need to do? Uh, you need to start being able to promote what you have going on. Um, they knew that they had to tour the United States a lot more frequently now that they had built up a good roster and they had already kind of put the feelers out with different um, TV shows that they had on cable at that point that they they were reaching the masses of the United States. They had the appeal, but they needed to go through and tour with them. Unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot of money at that point. Money was something that to be able to fund a tour, they needed a really, really big event that would have a really big gate that they could make a ton of money off of to have enough money to tour. So this is where you see the early invention of pay-per-views. Pay-per-views I didn't realize were around back in 85, but they were around back in 85 and WrestleMania was born as the first paper, excuse me, the first pay-per-view event that the WWF ever did. Okay. Um, Before you go any further, I do need to take a bathroom break. Okay. All right. Well, hey there, all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for socials. Where can they find us on Instagram? If they want to uh, follow us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram. That goes the same for Threads as well. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Ooh, tell them about Twitter. Historically High. That's historically H I on Twitter. And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam? At Historically High Podcast at gmail.com gmail all right and back to the show all right and we're back we're not tapping out yet no we still got a lot of fun stuff to go through all right so wrestlemania is born <coughs> uh 
base and it's this isn't the invention of pay-per-view it's just like one of the first events to yeah. really be available or require a pay-per-view yeah um one of the ways to sell a pay-per-view is to get it in front of as many mainstream eyeballs as possible how do you do that through something the wwf coined as the rock and wrestling connection you familiar it sounds kind of familiar. So I didn't realize this. 1985 MTV was around. Mm-hmm. Um, and the WWF used MTV. They would put different things, different kinds of their programming on MTV. Um, they also struck up a very good relationship enough to where when WrestleMania happens in 1985, um, Cindy Lauper is in attendance. I believe she sings America the Beautiful at the beginning. Cindy Lauper, huge star at that point in time. Main event time for that. After time. <laughs> Main event at that point. Uh, oh, that's what I was going to say. Uh, Cindy Lauper had a couple different, like, I, I don't know if you call them programs. She did different interviews with Roddy Roddy Piper, mm-hmm. and they're incredible. Like, the, Roddy Piper's chemistry with Cindy Lauper, as far as the different, uh, he did something called Piper's Pit. It mm-hmm. was like a. Yeah, I remember. Okay, yeah. yeah. It was like a little commentary in case you didn't know. Like they would have five minutes at a wrestling event where Piper would come out. He would have like a little talk show sort of deal. Um, This is also where Piper, not this same one, but Piper's Pit is where he hits Jimmy Snuka in the head with the coconut and another just very oddly, (laughs) oddly thought out thing from Vince McMahon. Um, The main event for WrestleMania 1, Mr. T teaming up with Hulk Hogan. So you got a member of the A team that's teaming up with Hulk Hogan. Dun, 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 Why am I forgetting dun, dun, his name in the A team? Uh, B.A. 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 Barakas. That's you right. You know I know that? Because I watched the remake of the A team within <laughs> the last six months. Badass Barakas. That's what the B.A. was for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this rock and wrestling connection helps bring a lot of eyes to to WrestleMania because you see these people that aren't just in the wrestling industry. Mr. T was probably huge at that point. Mm -hmm. Cindy Lauper might've been one of the biggest stars in music. I mean, very popular people to bring in. Um, after that WrestleMania two also happens, you know, it was a pretty big deal. This becomes then a yearly. Yeah. It's our, it's a moneymaker. We're going to keep doing it. it. It provided them enough money to be able to tour. Leading into it, they know they needed it again, so they're going to do it again. Uh, WrestleMania and now three they have more people ordering it. Oh yeah, and there's a huge jump between WrestleMania one and WrestleMania three. WrestleMania three happened in the Pontiac Silverdome. This was where Hogan slams Andre for the first time it's ever seen that somebody beat Andre on TV. It's picked up Andre. Yeah, he, he body slammed yeah. him. First it time, was the first time. Up. No, what I'm saying is the first time, like no one thought that that could be done. Yeah, it was the first time anybody had seen it on TV. He, he'd been slammed before, oh. and I think Hogan had actually even slammed him once before, but it was in AWA. Uh. But this was like the time that it happens. This happens in front of. It, it's contested. It's debatable in the wrestling industry. Everything is always blown up. If it comes out of Vince's mouth nine times out of ten, nine and a half times out of ten, nine point nine times out of ten, <laughs> when Vince says something, it's going to be a lie. Uh, it was estimated 93,173 people How were, many could it, were in attendance. It'd be hilarious if that they're like the capacity was 84,000. <laughs> well, and that really could have been. Uh, that's a, a fun way that they play with attendance is depending on how big the like ringside and everything is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it varies the yeah. attendance so much. 
But it was a massive event. WrestleMania three is still one of my favorite WrestleManias to watch. Um, Andre is out there with Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan, one of the greatest um, managers ever. Uh, I forgot to mention that before. Kind of a, an easy way to tell how somebody was going to be like a good heel and somebody that was going to eventually be a star that was going for a, a title. They had a manager, yeah. To maintain some mystery, the manager uh-huh. would do most of the talking for him. Uh, I, Undertaker. Paul Bear. Kane. Paul Bear. I thought Kane was he, Bobby Heenan. Or was that Brock Lesnar? No, Brock Lesnar was, he's still around today. Is Paul Bobby e Heenan the bald guy or with, with the ponytail? Yeah. I <sighs> thought he was with Kane or something. No, it was always Paul Bear. Okay. Um, Paul Bear also did Kane, or he also did Mankind. Paul Bear's original name in wrestling is Percy Pringle, and he started out as a wrestler. So that large man that looked awkward was a wrestler in the ring That's at one point in time. Uh, there was a guy named Captain Lou Albano. Very, very funny. He might be one of my favorite managers of all time. Just a very crazy man. Uh, a guy named the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Rough name back then. Grand Wizard seems like it could have been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe not you the best choice. You took me from Fantasy Wizard <laughs> to Clan Wizard like <laughs> very quickly. But uh, he's he was a legend. He was a star. Uh, a very, very good manager. So you have Andre out there with Bobby Heenan, who, again, used to be a wrestler, was fantastic as a manager, also a very good um, announcer. But the WrestleMania attendance for that just absolutely blew the doors off of anything. For the longest time, it was like the largest, I think it still might even be close to one of the largest wrestling events that ever happened. I don't know if it's been beaten. But even like an indoor event, it held the record for, I think, indoor event for a very long time. Um. And off of that success, the WWF was like, well, shit, if WrestleMania draws like this, we can also do more of these. This is where the Big Four came about. The Big Four in WrestleMania, SummerSlam, uh, Survivor Survivor Series, Series. and Royal Rumble. So you're going to have one in April. You're going to have one in August. You're going to have one in November. You're going to have one in January. Nowadays, they realized how fucking much money these things make. They're called premium live events because they're technically not on pay-per-view anymore. Mm-hmm. They do 12 PLEs a year. So there's one every single month to be able to draw these huge numbers. The downside to that is instead of having three months in between to build storylines, mm-hmm. you're trying to build storylines on the fly, and these payoffs well, aren't You have always... so many characters that you can probably get away with it, right? You can, but storytelling becomes rushed when you cut down your time by a th- or two-thirds. Yeah. So your your programming looks a little different now. I liked it a little bit better back then because they felt like they were a lot more special. But again, I'm just a fan, not a part of the industry. Um. This is where we get into some pretty crazy times. Crazier, uh, reality crazy. Not wrestling crazy, reality crazy. From 88 to 94, there's a slew of different things that happen as far as just scandals and weird things that Vince Jr. does. Uh, There was something called the Ring Boy Scandal. There were three guys that worked with Vince underneath him. Uh, One of them was Pat Patterson. The other two escaped me at this point. Uh, something that was going on was when they were traveling from town to town, they would hire younger boys to come set up the rings and do all that kind of Just stuff. Move, moving on. Yep. I, I get it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually probably could have assumed that I was hoping yeah. it was a clever name and not a very apt disc, just name. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the world bodybuilding federation. Now, if you could just go with me on this for a second, Vince loves wrestling. 
Vince loves big guys in wrestling. Everybody that he gets is always a built guy. This is in the steroids era. Superstar Billy Graham was way before this, and he was kind of like the first guy that ever... This was like patient zero for steroids in wrestling. Mm-hmm. was Superstar Billy Graham. Built guy, great wrestler, definitely on the gear. Um, but Vince also loved bodybuilding because he loved big guys. So there was a... What do they call now? The IBF? The International Bodybuilding Federation? Yeah. Is that what it is? IBFF. Um, they were putting on a meet back in, I think it was 1988, and Vince went to the meet, and he's like, I got to do this. I got a lot of money. I got money to burn. I'm going to start my own bodybuilding federation, and I already have a pretty good handle on how steroids work, so I'm just going to go ahead and leave all the rules to the side and juice these guys up and make them as big as possible. So they go to this IBF meet, and um wider i think is the mm-hmm. the uh olympia guy yeah um their company is sponsoring the event that night vince and his friends stay in the hotel where all the competitors are and go around to all the hotel doors and slide contract offers for vince's new mm-hmm. bodybuilding company or vince's new bodybuilding federation underneath the doors paying these guys promising them like five hundred thousand dollars for these contracts to leave the IBF and come to Vince's organization. And I'm sure it's like $500,000 and we'll make sure you get as many steroids as you want. Yeah. Like we're, we're going to make you, there's no rules here. Yeah. Yep. You don't have a, we're the governing body and we're telling you to do this shit. Mm -hmm. So go ahead, have fun with it. Um, there was a woman named Rita Chatterton. Rita Chatterton was the first kind of like known female referee in wrestling. Um, she ends up, getting a hold of Vince and she is promised a job in the WWE promised a lot of different things, very large contracts, um, spreads in magazines, interviews, that kind of a thing. Uh, this is all alleged. I don't, she was a referee. Yeah. And this was all offered to her like later on. Um, this was, I think like late eighties. No, no, no. I mean like she was already working for the company and no, she was brought in on the the promise of a contract, a big contract, Why and all this stuff. Why did they give it to a, just a female referee? Like I'm not saying like was it because it was like a new thing? I it just there were female wrestlers, but as far as a referee goes, a female referee. Oh, is okay. And you had to have someone capable of doing the the job. I you know. Yeah, the, if, running the match, directing the match, and everything. Okay, women that want to wrestle are fairly rare, I think, at this gotcha, point. So, women okay. that want to referee, like not be in the spotlight as a wrestler, gotcha, but still be in the business. Yeah. Um, comes in, Vince keeps stringing her along, promising many different things. Again, this is all alleged, but Vince paid a lot of money out of this, so I'm going to say it probably is pretty close to happening. Uh, Vince lures her into his limo away from a a gala that they were at a business meeting and Vince unzips his pants. Um, there's some non-consensual I, things that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Rita Chatterton will actually come up a little bit later, kind of in this era and ends up suing Vince for sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like Vince's first on the record. Is it like the boogeyman name for you? If you say sexual assault fast enough, it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I I, 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 we all understood when he pulled out his dick that it yeah. was going to be an assault. I, I don't like talking about this kind of stuff, but at the same time, I feel like words Based are Based on very- current events that have happened, yeah. it's not that shocking. The more people are aware 
After searching Vince McMahon, sexual assault pulls up now as the top search. <laughs> well, and when you're talking about something is you know, serious as that, I still feel like you got to use the words yeah. because the words mean something in what's going on and it I brings gotcha. sort of a, a seriousness to what's going on. And lo and behold, we have a steroid scandal. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy named Dr. Zahorian that he's, oh, I forgot what kind of a doctor he was, but he ends up. That lets you know he's usually a legitimate. I forget what kind of doctor he was. Yeah, he he had a title. He was an osteo something. I don't, I don't remember what it was. Not an osteopath, but he worked maybe bones, something a like that. Steroidician. Yeah, that. that exactly. Steroidician. Um, Zahorian starts working for WWF. He's, I think he works out of Pennsylvania. He was like working for the federations that govern like sports. And this is, it's something that I forgot to say. Um, for the longest time, they worked under the purview of being an actual sporting event. So we're clean. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't really Nothing like that. funny going on over here. <laughs> <laughs> Ignore the blatant racism and exploitation of women. There's definitely nothing fishy going on with our athletes. So um, they... Are we going to get, like, am I going to get hate? from people to listen to this and hear me talk about, or like as a wrestling fan, do you just understand that this is part of the past and you can still appreciate the art and, or you can appreciate the sausage without appreciating the art from the artist. Um, this is where I have a tough time with wrestling fans. I don't want to go really deep into this because it leads me down another rabbit hole. There's people that understand wrestling for what it is and like that there are good and bad things, but there were times where you just really enjoy the product. But you also understand that there's, it's like the duality, you understand the duality of wrestling. Yes. You understand that most of the time the good guys are roid freaks and drug addicts. A lot of the time the bad guys aren't always so bad. They're just very good at playing a heel. This is like if you eat something that's like really delicious, like you have a donut and it's the best donut you've ever had in your entire life, but you find a hair in it, you're you're a little disgusted at times, but you're going to just pull the hair out and you're going to be like, this is the best donut I've ever had. And you're just going to keep eating the donut. Uh, well, and there's none of this that I would ever like debate and argue with because it is just so clear and I cut and dry. There are people that are wrestling fans that would be like, no, Vince wasn't super into steroids, even though in this upcoming trial, he will say that he bought steroids from Zahorian very many times. Gotcha, like, okay. I, I can face the reality of how bad some of these people were because I did enjoy the product. And I found out about this shit later. This is all, I'm still a very young man when this stuff is happening. That's true. So the end result of that is that they're like, well, hold on a second. We're not going to make them stop doing steroids. We're just going to stop testing for steroids. Uh, So uh, Zahorian's deal is that he's working outside of wrestling. He gets a pretty big name for being a guy that you can go to for any kind of steroids, pain pills, anything like that. Gets into the WWF Who immediately. Was the guy that was supposed, supposedly hooking up A-Rod and all those guys? Uh, He wasn't that guy. I know it's but, not. What was his name? Uh, I don't remember. It, that's kind of what, how I view it. He, he yeah. was a man that knew how to get things. Yeah. Um, so Zahorian's working with the WWF. He's basically writing prescriptions left and right. He's actually writing prescriptions for Vince and Hogan, like at the same time. Um, oh, so Vinny's already on the gear. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So Zahorian ends up going down. Part of him going down, he, I think got two or three years in prison. He's like, Hey, Got a big, pretty big deal with uh, WWF and Vince McMahon. You might want to look into them. So all of a sudden, the... He goes, rat? Well, he had to. He was trying to save his ass. So 
in doing that, there was a time, I want to say that steroids ended up becoming illegal in like the maybe 90, 91. Mm-hmm. So there was a gray area where they were buying from Zahorian before it happened. So there was, was like plausible deniability. To say there was plausible deniability, Vince actually talked to the CEO or the CFO of the WWF. And he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm going to buy some steroids from Zahorian. <laughs> he's like, no. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to go ahead and... Um, Start an account outside of the company, something that doesn't get traced back mm-hmm. to you to where you have checks to be able to pay for this shit, so that way it doesn't ever come back to us. That already seems shady, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not getting them sent to Vince's house, though. We're going to get them sent to Titan headquarters so they can be given to you. We can get them to Hogan and that kind of a deal. When they find out that Zahorian goes under, Vince is like, ooh, shit. Um, okay, Pat Patterson, get on the phone. Go ahead and call. I forgot who they called. It was like a personal assistant. She ends up being a part of this case. Um, tells her to delete all the FedEx transit or all the FedEx deliveries, like in the log that they have from mm-hmm. Zahorian and just any sort of mention of Zahorian. Yeah. He goes to all the rest of us. He goes, new shit, guys. Um, yeah, Zahorian's caught. So all you guys are going to have to go cold turkey. And just for this purpose we're actually going to start doing legitimate steroid testing to make sure that i can make sure that you guys are all off gear mm-hmm. um you're going to do your steroid tests where we're looking at your junk while you pee so we can make sure that you're not trying to beat us because if anybody ever tests you and they find it we could be in some big trouble so they start all this steroid testing um the trial comes and basically vince is exon well not exonerated found not guilty because they looked at the situation as Vince, they kind of proved that Vince never told anybody directly that they needed to be on of steroids. Course. Of course. But it was sort of something that was heavily implied around the backstage that it's Vince like an, likes it's like big a guys. Beach. I mean, technically, you can show up wearing your swim trunks, but people are going to be like, are you just here to look at naked people? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hogan is like the star witness that shows up. This is the first time that I think probably the first time maybe Brother, these 24 inch pythons are all natural. No, he, he got up there and he told the truth. He said that he had taken steroids. So this guy that's preaching about taking your vitamins and saying your prayers to children gets up in front of Congress is like, yep, did steroids. Um, Vince never told me a to do steroids. <laughs> yeah. Like a it was baby cries. Like it yeah. was a shock that this giant dude is on steroids. Every kid was like, no. And every, every father was like, I knew it. <laughs> So Vince, some guy in Boston, Karen, he said he did it. I fucking knew it. I told you. (laughs) So Vince comes out of it. Vince comes out of it clean. He makes it through all of these big hurdles in the clear, but all the shit that was said at trial has now leaked out to all the fans in wrestling. So all the fans in wrestling kind of have a sour taste in their mouth towards the WWF because they've lied, been lied to. They, they didn't realize that steroids were this big deal. And this is, I, I know you're giving me that look, but we're talking about people that have to suspend belief to watch this product and enjoy it. So when they're hit in the face with something as serious as a trial. Yeah, I guess when I'm watching Lord of the Rings or something, I'm not like, that armor's fake. That sword was rubber. I'm not saying that. Like, I know it is. I know it's a movie. But you just want to say, no, these guys are just built for wrestling. They're yeah. just the wrestlers. They're uh-huh. supposed to look like this. I got so, you. Yeah. Young, they, I can see young Adam sitting cross-legged in front of the TV, a single tear rolling down your cheek being like, say it ain't so Hulk. Say it ain't so. Well, this is at a time when everybody in the world 
is I don't know why they're so caught up in trying to figure out if wrestling is real or not. Um, two big examples, and these happened. The first one happened all the way, yeah, it happened all the way back in 85. Um, will you Google Hulk Hogan chokes out TV host? Because I forgot his name. Um, to promote WrestleMania. Keep going. I know who Belzer, Richard Belzer. That's his name. I thought it was Bob Euchre. No, it was Richard Belzer. Oh, Bob Euchre's the one that gets choked by Andre, Andre in the picture. Right. So um, Hogan and Mr. T go on Richard Belzer's talk show, and Belzer's like, is this, is what you guys do real? And Hogan's like, just feel real, brother. Yeah, is this real? Is this, is this what you're thinking? He's like, well, can you do like a, a wrestling hold to me or anything like that? And Mr. T's like, not going to choke out Belzer on TV. That's not going to happen. This is going to look bad for a guy that looks like me choking out weird Richard Belzer on TV. So Hogan's like, I'll do it, brother. Hogan steps up and puts him in uh, like a headlock, basically. Mm-hmm. And he tells him before it, he's like, Bells, if anything goes wrong, go ahead and let me know. If you're losing air or anything mm-hmm. like that, let me know. Hogan puts a headlock on him. Then like three seconds, Belzer just goes out. Goes out like a light. Hogan and those 24-inch pythons just squeeze the life out of Belzer. Belzer passes out. Hogan lets him go. Belzer I have seen this, falls yes. and hits his head on the ground, gets a head injury, and you hear in this interview that they're doing, Mr. T's like, ah, oh, he's just asleep. It's like, no, he's got a massive head injury. Uh, uh, he, he is asleep, <laughs> yeah. which led to the massive head injury, yeah. Uh, the other one that's, like, most famous, guy named Dr. David Schultz. He's a wrestler. This is, like, the most carny dude that you've ever seen. Like he's beat up everybody in every trailer park in the country. John Stossel, the, the reporter, the guy that was on, I think it was 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, he shows up at a wrestling event and he wants to do an interview because he wants to expose wrestling for being fake. So Vince is like, Schultze, you go talk to Stossel. Just do the interview. Don't let him break you. So Stossel shoots him straight. He goes, is this real? Is, is what you guys do out there real? Schultz fucking wallops him in the side of the head during the interview on TV. He hit him so hard that Stossel was able to sue him for damage to his ear and his hearing. I mean, Schultz, he, he walloped him. And as soon as he hits him, he goes, does that feel real to you? Is that what you were looking for? Is that what you wanted? Does that feel real to you? And Stossel's like, oh my God, you just hit me. Like just in shock that this dude just uncorked one while the cameras were on film. I'm a journalist, dude. (laughs) Yeah. So it's at a time when people are really struggling with how real wrestling is. And then you have this steroids era that happens and hits. And all of a sudden they're like, well, fuck. We thought that it was real. Everybody's been fighting to figure out if it was real. Now we found out that all these guys aren't natural athletes. Mm -hmm. They're all on steroids. And that's where stuff kind of starts to turn. Um, WWF goes from doing something called Saturday Night Main Event that was on, uh, fuck, I believe it was on NBC. But. Early 90s, you're just trying to wrap up the rest of this deal with his steroids trial. The first Monday Night Raw hits on January 11th, 1993. And WWF Raw was, it's become like one of the longest weekly or longest running weekly episodic TV shows. Like it's been going strong since 93 very, very well. Excuse me. Uh, Vince. Oh my God, that's all the way up. Fuck, that's 30 years now. Vince is a commentator. Vince is down working. I believe he worked with, it was Heenan and some, no, it wasn't Heenan. I don't remember who he worked with. Um, but this is like their big foray into cable to where everybody can see them. And the first Raws 
they were a pretty big deal. They were very, very good. And this is where we find the natural competition that comes out and we start the Monday Night Wars. This is just the beginning. Um, there's a gentleman whose name is Ted Turner. He owned Turner Broadcasting for forever. Uh, he actually owned Turner Broadcasting in the 80s. He really didn't like Vince because Vince had fucked with uh, what was known as Jim Crockett Promotions. And Jim Crockett Promotions is what turns into WCW. Okay. He would fuck with him because whenever Crockett would run a big event, WWF would run a counter event to any of Crockett's promotions to try to steal viewers. So, Oh, so the WCW was a previous promotion that was still in existence, even competing still against. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what does Turner do? He gets a hold of Eric Bischoff, who was a former announcer. He goes, I'm going to need you as my VP. I want you to step in. I want you to run my new Monday program that's going to run counter to WWF Raw. Just like Vince did to Jim Crockett, we're going to go ahead and run Nitro right along with Raw. So Nitro comes along in 1995, um, and this rivalry just intensifies very, very quickly. Um, Nitro being direct competition with Raw, uh, there was something called ECW that came around right around 1994. ECW was East Coast Wrestling. They turned into Extreme Championship Wrestling. They were like the hardcore need-to-see-blood-in-every-match type fans. They were... uh, Niche. Yeah. What you want to refer to as niche. Very fun, but these people were very serious about what they wanted to watch. Um, When they went head-to-head, kind of in the beginning, they would trade back and forth as far as who was scoring higher in the ratings. They were both really kind of putting on a show... Did they poach a bunch of, um, did they already have like a lot of established talent when it turned into WCW or did they also like go after some of like McMahon's guys? They had had quite a bit at this point. Uh, when Hogan testifies at the steroids trial, he's actually working for WCW at the time. So he was out of the WWF when he covered for Vince. So that was, he's also covering himself. himself. Yes. But that was kind of how far it went. Um, And when you go back and forth in this ratings war, eventually 1996 comes around. 1996 comes around and WCW just started mollywhopping the WWF. I'm not going to lie to you. I was first introduced to professional wrestling by WCW, by Nitro. And it's because Nitro was on earlier, wasn't it? Um, they, They would jockey back and forth to try to outdo each other, just to try to bring eyeballs in. And wait, time slots or because sometimes always, time slots. I always remember Nitro starting at like six and then Raw not starting till like two hours after because Nitro was a three hour show. Well, they both started out an hour. Okay. And then WWF went ahead and made Raw two hours to try to combat and try to get people away from WCW. WCW doubles up to two hours and so on to your both three hour shows. That's um, so fucking crazy to think of. Is it still that long today? Monday nights are three hours, I believe, and Friday Night Smackdown, I think, is two hours. That's so crazy. There's a three-hour weekly show. Uh, three-hour weekly show, one-hour NXT show on Wednesdays, I think, or maybe Tuesdays now. It's been a little bit since I've watched it. And then two hours for SmackDown. You also have little stuff. I think they still do something called Main Event, which is just like a... Like developmental stuff. It's NXT is supposed to be the developmental. Main Event's like so we can get a little bit of work out of the guys we're paying not to wrestle. It's so crazy how much of like an enterprise it is. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. These guys... 
believe it or not, back then, these guys were trading ratings that were like 5 million was a baseline. 5 million viewers was a baseline for these guys. These guys were routinely pulling over 5 million each on a Monday night. That's how much they were, as opposed to now where 2 million is a big night for WWE. Mm -hmm. Like that's how far off the fans have dropped since then. And just how streaming sort of has changed the game with everything. But 5 million people each were tuning in. I'm sure there was crossover. There were people switching back and forth. Yeah. That's a fuckload of people oh, watching yeah. wrestling every Monday night. Um, so WCW pulls ahead. And in 1996, when they took the lead, I mean, from May 1996 to March 1998, they beat Raw in ratings for 84 consecutive weeks. And this was due in large part. In wrestling, there's things that they there's just really no new stories wwf coming up we're going to talk about some new stories that had never been done before just because they got crazy the nwo was sort of a loose invention that came from um an organization in japan that had done kind of like a an nwo kind of storyline mm -hmm. there hadn't been seen stateside though so when nwo comes you have the big show up at the outsiders when diesel and razor ramon come over from the wwf kevin nash and scott hall yep come over from the WWF. They had had a very weird moment. Their last match was with Shawn Michaels and Triple H in WWF, and they were known backstage as the click. And so Diesel and... Oh, all four of them. Yeah, there was more of them, but all they were kind of like the four main members of gotcha. it. Gotcha. So their last match is a tag team match between Triple H and Diesel and Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. After the match is over, they know that it's their last match, and all four of them hug in the ring. And wave to the crowd, which is something that kayfabe, the fake world in wrestling, you just don't do. So it was an ultimate slap. You never break that fourth wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Vince is so angry that when Hall and Nash leave, he creates a fake Razor Ramon and a fake Diesel <laughs> that are actual wrestlers that are still wrestling as those characters because they own the IP for the characters. So they put in two wrestlers that look really like if you squinted your eyes and then closed them, they looked a lot like Nash and Hall, but it, you just knew that it wasn't them. Meanwhile, Hall and Nash are in WCW on a storyline that they were sent over from Vince McMahon to try to take over and invade and, or take over and invade WCW as the outsiders. It was a plan for them to go over. That's what WCW is passing off the storyline. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So they were breaking Jesus Christ. I was going to say if that it's a good storyline, <laughs> if that was true. Oh my God. And as they're doing that, as they're causing chaos in Bedlam, they're talking about this third member of the outsiders. that's going to be showing up. This sets up the biggest turn in the history of turns for wrestling. When Hulk Hogan, who's been a baby face his entire career, ends up jumping over to the dark side and forming the NWO at the outside. Hollywood Hogan. It's, I still remember the night very vividly. I remember exactly how it happened. For time purposes, I'm not going to go into it, but it's fucking amazing. So you have this NWO storyline that's who just... Did, who did he end up leg dropping in the ring to like initiate the heel turn? Uh, I believe it was Piper. Macho. Was it? I, are I, you I, sure it was a Macho Man? Might have been Macho Man. It might have been Macho Man. He comes down to make the save, and then he as he comes down to make the save, he ends up, yeah, hitting him with it. it. The biggest turn that I've ever seen, it was incredible. And I still watch it to this day, and I'm just as flummoxed as I was back then, and I know what happens. Uh, but this NWO storyline just takes over wrestling. It's the biggest thing in the world. 
WWF knows that they're falling behind and they got to make some shit happen. Um, February 3rd, like we talked about, 1997, Raw goes to two hours to start trying to push people away from WCW and get those eyes back. We can at least try to get you for the last hour, yeah. that second hour. They also start to work with the aforementioned ECW. They kind of do their own invasion angle where the ECW comes in and the announcers for WWF absolutely hate them. Uh, Paul Heyman is the guy that runs with Brock. Okay. He was Paulie Dangerously. He ran ECW. Terrible business manager. Fantastic uh, manager. <laughs> Horrible business manager. <laughs> fantastic fake manager. When ECW finally drops and goes into bankruptcy and dies, I think they owed half a million dollars to like 40 performers. That was how far back they were mm-hmm. and how much money they owed. But this kind of helps and it kind of brings this new edgier version of WWF to the masses. And they then, have to do something different. They're not beating, at this point, they're not beating WCW playing the same game. So they're like, well, they got to be like, well, fuck it. We just got to try something different at this point. Yeah. And 1997 is kind of the beginning launch of the Attitude Era where they started focusing on a lot edgier content. Uh, they took advantage of the USA Network's more lax standards as far as what they would be allowed to show on TV. Mm-hmm. Whereas WCW, working with Turner, TBS, and TNT, two very reputable TV companies, were like, eh, you got to tone that shit down. Yeah. Um, there was a crazy... Showing Nash Bridges after this. <laughs> yeah. There was a crazy-ass storyline that happened between Stone Cold and Brian Pillman. Uh, rest in peace, Brian Pillman where Stone Cold breaks into Pillman's house. Pillman pulls a gun on Stone Cold, and the TV feed cuts. You hear a couple bangs. You hear Pillman screaming at Stone Cold. The camera's cut back after Vince is trying to explain what's going on. Pillman is dragging Stone Cold out of his house, saying the son of a bitch deserved what I just gave him. And the execs at USA were like, what did you just do? Because was it live at that point? Yeah. And as they did it, it was so bad that they were going to cancel Raw until Vince and Brian Pillman had to make apologies on TV for that storyline, for that little gimmick that they did. So that was too much, is what you're telling me. You would think. So USA's like, "Eh, we might not renew you. There's a shakeup at uh, USA. There's a new executive that comes in. Turns out he's a big wrestling fan. He's like, I really like that shit. I know they didn't like it. I really liked it. It brought a lot of eyes to what we were doing. That that brought a lot we're of people. USA in. Network. Yeah. International. We're showing waters. reruns of Xena and Hercules. We need to get some fucking eyes on this. We're putting silk stockings after we, Raw. We to... specialize, you know, the show Wings. <laughs> we have that early in the morning. Yep. Yeah, the dark stuff is for nighttime. Nikita. Oh, La Femme Nikita. Nikita. Yeah, that always came on after. I remember that as a young boy. You know, that was just basically, she was like a spy. It wasn't anything perverted. She was literally just like a hot spy. It, La Femme Nikita I, just exactly, sounds hot. Exactly. Yeah. So this new guy's like, yo, do whatever you want. Make it all happen. Uh, kind of the, that happened a little bit, I think maybe towards the beginnings of the Attitude Era. It sort of starts with something called the Montreal Screwjob. I was going to say, is this like a... Uh, a red letter day in the wrestling community. Like everyone knows this is like the Kennedy assassination. I think that's where the Montreal screw job is. The okay. Montreal screw job was something that nobody had ever really seen before. Cause it was that first break in kayfabe where everything got very serious. Uh, just a quick run over. This will be an episode. I'm sure. Uh, Bret Hart 
can't come to terms with the WWF on a new contract. He's the champion. WWF's like, hey, man, we're not going to be able to pay you the same money. Brett's this like, is real. Yes, this okay. is all real. This isn't the storyline. Okay. No, Brett's like, cool. Um, WCW is offering me a shitload of money, just like they did Hogan, Hall, Nash, everybody that they're poaching away. I'm your biggest star. I'm your champion. You guys aren't going to pay me. Fuck you. I'm going over there. They had the issue of a champion of their company leaving. Vacating the title. Well, and what do you do at that point? You can't have him carrying your title on somebody else's show. Yeah. So they have to drop the title before they leave the promotion. They have a show up in Montreal where they want Brett to lose it. Brett Hart, Stu Hart is his father. They come Uh, from like a wrestling lineage. Stu Hart is the guy that trained Jack Atkinson. Mm -hmm. So the Royal Wrestling family. Okay. He says, there's no way that I'm losing in Canada. The Von Erichs dad. Yeah. Okay. He, Stu Hart trained the Von yes. Erichs dad. He also trained Brett, Owen, Brian Pillman, yep. British Bulldog, Chris Jericho. The list just goes on All the and Canadian on. guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Brett's like, there's no way I'm dropping the title to a guy that I hate and Shawn Michaels, who's just a cokehead freak at this point. Not dropping it to him. I hate this guy in real life. I'm not losing in Canada because I'm a... I'm a Canadian hero. There's no way that the people are ever going to be. I'm goddamn Canadian royalty. How dare you ask me to do this? Well, and I'm also going into WCW, so I can't look bad heading into a new promotion. I'm a loser, and that's why I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. Going to going to pay me a ton of money. So they go back and forth. The idea is that there's going to be a scrum in the ring at the end of the show, at the end of their match. Brett's going to show up the next night. He's going to vacate the title, hand it over to Vince. Then he's going to head off into greener pastures of WCW. The day comes, him and Michaels are wrestling, the move in question, um, Brett, the hitman heart, always use the sharpshooter as mm-hmm. his finisher. Michaels straps the sharpshooter onto Brett, a big disrespectful thing in wrestling to use somebody's finisher against How them. How dare you use my own move against me? <laughs> yeah. As Brett's crawling to the ropes to try to break the hole. Because that, I will tell you right now, the leg lock moves they fucking hurt. <laughs> yeah. I've put, I've been put in a figure four, a lion tamer, a sharpshooter many times, backyard trampoline wrestling. Oh, yeah. Those ones hurt because that's fucking bending your spine and bending your legs in weird ways. Well, and there's, you don't, there's different pressure ways to do it. So it doesn't kill you when you do it. You can kill somebody pretty easily with it, but you can also make it look worse than it actually yeah. is. Um, as Brett's crawling over to the ropes to break the hold, Vince and his cronies come down, point to the ref, the ref rings the bell. All of a sudden, Brett submitted to his own move in Canada in front of everybody to a person that he hates, all because Vince just flipped the script on Brett. So he wasn't expecting to be put in the no. hold. Well, he, he knew the original outcome was going to be he was going to break the hold. They would get up, wrestle some more. Then there would be some sort of a like run-in in the ring. Got, okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. So Vince... Stabs him in the back, and Brett drops the title in Montreal to somebody that he hates. Brett goes crazy, and the fans go even crazier. As soon as Vince realizes what happens, him and his boys backpedal. Michaels grabs the belt and runs out of the ring with him, and Brett is losing his mind in the rings. The fans are booing. They're throwing trash. Right before Brett leaves, he takes his finger, and he paints a WCW in the middle of the WWF ring as he walks to the back, goes to the back, gets showered up, packs his shit up, goes and meets Vince. Vince tells the story that um, because he screwed Brett, he said that Brett could take one shot at him. Brett and everybody else that was involved said that Brett just walked up and uppercutted him, knocked him out cold, knocked his boss out. Stone cold <laughs> is a, 
a sign of things to come, and then leaves, shows up to WCW, has his career over there. Eventually, there's a reconciliation. I'd like to say that that's the worst thing that happened to the hearts in WWF, but that's a monica of what's to come. So you have this attitude era where you start to sort of see these characters change because you could make a career as being a healer or face the entire time. Like you, you're just, you're bound to one, you play it very well. That's everything. This attitude era starts seeing these wrestlers change back and forth just on a whim. The, they'll change based on a storyline, anything like that, um, that moves forward. And, it sort of changes the game. Everybody is so enthralled by all just this shocking shit that's going on. They end up wrestling the Monday Night Wars back April 13th, 1998. Raw beats Nitro on ratings for the first time since 1996. It, it worked, dude. Yeah. I, can, I can honestly tell you that it worked because I watched... I watched the entire NWO storyline, the Wolfpack storyline, mm-hmm. and then it started to get old. And then you would maybe toward the end of the program, like this kind of boring, you would go over or during commercial break, you would go over and watch some of Raw. And you would just see and be like, this looks, it even looked like the camera angles were better. It looked like cleaner or sharper. Yeah. And like, as someone that was a teenager at that time, growing up during that period, I was like, this is now more my speed, I think. It, it got older and it got more like rebellious and everything like that as kids got older. It didn't just try to do the same thing and rely on just the pull of characters. Well, and we were sort of growing up, I think, at a time to where all that stuff was cooler, whereas the older generation was like, oh, shit, like, this I is new. Be, like, I shouldn't be watching yeah, this. Yeah. Like, yep. if I get caught watching uh-huh. this, they're going to be like, this is, you can't watch this. And adults are like, oh, shit, this is, this is our, our stuff. This mm-hmm. is, this is us. This isn't these cartoonish characters anymore. These yeah. are some real hijinks, riddled It's like when they start making adult animation. Yeah. And again, we'll talk about the Attitude Era in and of itself in another one, in another episode. Uh, January 4th, 1999, the Foley incident was one of the biggest boons in WCW history. On Nitro that night, they made it sort of this idea where um, Raw would pre-tape sometimes a week in advance, and you would be able to get the information for what happened on WWF the from the previous week that was going to be shown on that night. So during Nitro that night, uh, Tony Schiavone, one of the announcers, announces the main event of Raw that night was that Mick Foley, Mankind, was going to beat The Rock for the title. And they were doing that basically to try to spoil it because he's like, oh yeah, now you know, you can stick around and watch us, you don't gotta switch over and watch that. Has the exact opposite effect. Over 600,000 people switched from Nitro to Raw to watch Foley win his title for the first time. And it, they were trying to fuck them. Yeah. And in the end, they're like, are you fucking serious? Well, why are we watching this shit? Yeah, exactly. And they had done it plenty of times before. I don't know how well it worked before, but this was like the biggest swing ever. Um, after that, WCW kind of starts to decline. They had already kind of started to decline. Their people were getting older. They weren't developing new wrestlers. So it was just older guys in the ring that were going at each other. The NWO storyline had already played out for too long. It was already gone. Um, after the decline in ratings happened, Turner is sold to AOL. Ted Turner's not involved anymore. AOL looks at it like, we don't really like wrestling anymore. We're not in this business. Yeah. Your guys' ratings have dropped massively. You lost the war. You've to, got mail, brother. Yeah. You lost the war to uh, WWF. 
Vince ends up buying WCW for $3 million. That seems all, like very, very low. It was like all the IP, all of the back catalog of shows, and then like 20 wrestlers contracts he got for $3 million. The signing bonus that Hogan was paid in 1998 to re-up with WCW was $2 million. And at this point in time, I think that year WWF made like $220 million in gross revenue. So a drop in the bucket to pay for WCW that's paid off tenfold now that they have all their IP. Um, 2002. Oh, wait. So how did they integrate? Like, because obviously people know in the real world that this is closing. They're probably expecting, you know, there's probably oh, yeah, talk yeah, like yeah. who's going to come over, who's going to be, you know, in WWF now. So this happens, I think it was March 23rd. March 26th is the last ever episode of Nitro. It goes out with Flair and Sting wrestling because they were, I think, the first main event of the first Nitro. So a very nice little bow that was tied onto it. Um, The way that they ended is Shane shows up on WCW television. Vince McMahon's son says that he bought WCW. He was going to take WCW with the contracts, I'm sure, that they had purchased during the deal. Mm -hmm. He was going to invade WWF, and they were going to start their own WCW, WF. I'm turning against my father, so it was Uh the turning against my father, and now I shall... Yeah. Pried the company from his grasp with my own. There's so many things that I've missed in here. Vince had a son and daughter, Shane and Stephanie. They're on-screen characters. Uh, There's just so much that I'm missing here. The fact that his family was so involved in this, and that's what I'm saying, is I got into WWF right as, like, Shane and Stephanie were coming out, and, like, basically they were getting, like, beat up in the ring. Yeah. 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 They were very, Not very involved. As, mm-hmm. like, the corporate characters, but, like, Vince's kids. Yeah. Uh, so, needing another challenge, WWF in 2002 changes to WWE because the challenger that they were taking on was the World Wildlife Fund. <laughs> and the World Wildlife Fund sued them to stop them from using WWF. So, in order to... We're all- starting to get some really fucked up calls. Yeah. So, if you guys can change your name... Yeah, and they lost that battle. They had to change to WWE, which was more fitting because at that point in time, they were had moved away from wrestling. They were an entertainment company that wrestled in a ring. So you have this switch over to something called the Ruthless Aggression Era. In the Ruthless Aggression Era, you don't have WCW or ECW that went under that was also purchased by WWF. Mm-hmm. You go from three companies down to one. We're the only show in town. Yeah, what do you do? You split your brands. You have a Raw brand and a SmackDown brand that have their own titles that are assigned to each other. We just got an influx of people that are popular characters Mm -hmm. that are now going to need jobs, but we only had the same amount of time. What do we do? We just need to expand the time and take over two nights. Yeah, and they still kept along with a lot of the elements of the storytelling that was from the Attitude Era. Um, Well, what ended up happening, correct me if I'm wrong, from what I remember, when Raw and then SmackDown came out, they were uh, almost a continuing storyline between both shows. They yeah. could be like, yep. stories could intertwine. And then later is when they actually like did drafts and got their own mm-hmm. roster and then competed. Because they were the only show in town, so they're like, fuck, there's no one else to compete against. What do we do? Yeah, and Raw was still the A show. They kind of screwed over SmackDown. SmackDown still had some good performances, but it was just always considered the B show. Um, 2004. Eddie Guerrero passes away at the age of 38. The list of wrestlers that died of heart attacks is 10 miles long, especially the ones that were really, really too early. Vince goes back in front of Congress and reinstitutes a wellness policy. They say, well, how come you stopped drug testing in 1996? He goes, 
I didn't have any money to pay for the drug testing. We were in a war with WCW and I needed as much money as possible to throw at trying to beat WCW when really it was just so his guys could continue to juice. Um, that I need my guys to be bigger. Yeah. Like I say, it reinstitutes a wellness policy. I don't know how well it does. Uh, in 2007, we had the Benoit incident. Mm-hmm. Just quick one on Benoit incident. Um, he went crazy and he murdered his children and then his wife and then killed himself. When Benoit's autopsy was done, they found out that the level of testosterone in his body was actually 10 times the amount that a normal human being would have. Uh, his doctor... The that CTE was, scans, right, were... <laughs> They were pretty bad, yeah, but they said that his steroids were just outrageous. Um, his doctor ended up going to jail. They looked at his prescription records, and he was prescribing Benoit a year's worth of steroids every four months. Jesus Christ. So it, it was that crazy. Um, 2006 to 2010, ECW returns under the WWE banner, so WWE is running an ECW show. So it was a third show that was on TV along with SmackDown and Raw. It's like CSI. Yeah, dude, they were everywhere. Um, 2008 started the PG era in WWE. Moves were renamed. Um, some moves were banned. Before John Cena had the attitude adjustment, it was called the FU. PG era, you can't really call it the FU, so you got to change it to the attitude adjustment. Uh, this is where blading was outlawed. So in the, wrestling... The- the practice of hiding a razor blade in one's <laughs> uniform and cutting the skin to start bleeding. Yep. So any blood that was ever going to be on TV after this purely like you had to earn it, it was coming the hard way. But at the same time, the PG era opened this new young audience to the WWE where they could sell so much merchandise to it, children. It basically, it sounds like what they did is they realized once they got too far, <laughs> And it was the same thing. Like they had a set base and were growing with the base with the more serious stuff. But then they're like, fuck, we're, we need to jump back and get the next generation. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, okay, well, what worked when WCW got those people? It was toned down a little bit and everything. And so let's just go back to that. And then we can grow with that generation. Maybe we get a little more. Yeah, you're just building for the future at that point. Um, so after that ends up happening, I don't mean to rush through this. Unfortunately, after WWE loses competition, I feel like they sort of got lazy because they didn't really have anybody pushing them. Yeah, they to were the be only better. show. They, yeah. yeah. Um, they could progress at their own pace. There was no, like you were saying, no one pushing behind them. Mm-hmm. NXT brand opens up in 2010 and it kind of started to show the inner workings of the performance center to build the new stars that were in WWE. Very cool in the beginning, just to kind of see how it went. Beforehand, there was a show called Tough Enough that was on I MTV. Yep, and, and it was, it was for contracts. It was like a survivor, yeah, for wrestling. Yep, or it, uh, Ultimate Fighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is basically showing like this is kind of how we build characters. They're sending new guys out there to start like learning promo skills, mm-hmm. but they're doing it in front of an actual audience at Full Sail University down in Florida. Yeah, so you're getting like real world work, and they're like, well, shit this would probably be pretty cool. We're marketing to kids. Why don't we show like the whole, how a wrestler gets made? You're tapping a new generation to be able to pull from, because some of those kids that watch that are like, I can do that. Mm-hmm. What's better than having a small pool of athletes to choose from and being like, well, none of these really fit what we're looking for. You now broaden that out to basically be like, it's an interview. Yeah. You're basically showing, guess what? This whole thing that you thought was inaccessible to you, that somehow these guys had to come to us through these weird means. Mm-hmm. No, it's accessible to everybody. You just got to come try. 
Well, and the other kind of thing about it too was you would get to see the stars of tomorrow today so you could kind of start to choose your favorite wrestlers in nxt mm -hmm. that would then move up to the major brands and you're hoping they make it yeah then you run into a situation these are going to be guys that you probably have it's so <laughs> weird that it starts to blend in like elements of actual like like college football they're like what do people like to do they love to watch the college athletes and hope that they make it to the NFL. Yeah. And then they can yes. say, that's my guy. E exactly. That's what it was. It's like college for professional wrestlers. You get to see them on a stage where they're developing before they become stars. Um, a couple guys, you're not going to know them, I'm sure. Um, Roman Reigns is I know The Rock's I've, cousin. I've yep. uh, Dean Ambrose was a wrestler named John Moxley that came from the independent circuit. Tyler Black, who is now um, Seth Rollins, mm -hmm. also came from the independent circuit. They started out on NXT and built themselves into three of the biggest stars in wrestling now. Rollins and Reigns are still at WWE. Um, Ambrose, who's now Moxley again, is in AEW, and he's their biggest draw, basically. So you, they built these guys, even though Ambrose and Black came from independence. Buddy, these guys are transitioning over to being some... One of them transitioned over to be the biggest star yeah. in Hollywood and is still an insane draw. Now you have a guy that's, like, fucking hilarious <laughs> that you never maybe got to see that character. But, like, this is... It's like when you hear... Not to compare it to be the same thing, but it's when you hear, like, a stage actor. Like, I went to, like, drama school, and then I became an actor. Yeah. Like, I have a pedigree to do this. You're almost seeing it to where you can now kind of, like, see them doing that. Yeah, and WWE likes to keep their IP for their characters, so they like to change their names. I think it's kind of cool when you see guys leave WWE and go somewhere else to where they can wrestle under their old names. Because mm -hmm. it's like, that was a character that was in one organization, now I'm kind of back to being me. Yeah. And it's just fun to see the dynamic of how they play out. Um, again, just sort of speeding along, because this stuff is, it, it's cool, but there's nothing really shocking in it. Uh, this is where we get into the financials of just how crazy wrestling has gotten. Well, it opens its own network yeah. on TV. It gets big enough to where, like, think of it, ESPN is just sports. Now you have so much content, so many people, like, so many actors mm -hmm. that are now in here. That's what the point I was getting at. I completely spaced off on that point. <laughs> what I was trying to say is wrestling, because it's almost like stage acting, because it's live performance. Yeah. And so if your character has to be funny... You learn how to be funny. Like, look at fucking Cena now. Yeah, like, Cena's a fucking hilarious, like comedic actor. I like him ten times more as an actor than I did as a wrestler yes. too. But he was just past my generation. I don't blame anybody for loving Cena as a wrestler because they saw him in a different light than I did. Mm -hmm. I, I see. I I like Cena. Cena the actor is the one I had the experience with. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this guy used to uh -huh. fucking wrestle. And then you see his wrestling work. You're like, oh, that's where you learn. That's where you honed your acting skills yes. as being a wrestler. So yeah, just like you mentioned. WWE Network starts on February 24th, 2014. It has all the old catalogs from all the territories and everything that Vince had bought up over ESPN time. Classics, man. That's yeah, what it is. Exactly. Rule. On times we can't fill this up with current content, we know you love those classic matches. Go back to WCW, watch all the old shit like I do, ECW, same way. Um, it actually sold to Peacock in 2021 for a five year, $1 billion contract, which, uh, fuck me, man. That's. 20 or 200 million dollars a year that peacock is paying wwe for them then recently uh super recently excuse me extremely recently january 23rd 2024 
gets sold to Netflix for a 10-year deal for $5 billion. This is pretty interesting to me because not only did they buy essentially what is the WWE Network, but they bought the rights to Raw. So Raw will now be live streamed in 2025 on Netflix. Netflix has done like five live streaming things, I think. And they paid enough money that WWE is like, yeah, we'll trust you with our baby. The flagship. Yeah, exactly. To me, that seems like NXT or Netflix is going to have to figure some shit out quick to be able to accommodate. Because if Raw comes on and something fucks up. Imagine the traffic during that oh, life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'll crash Netflix pretty quickly, I think. Especially because they want to see it on Netflix. Like, it's a new platform. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to look just a little bit different. Yeah. Um. Back to June 17th, 2022, um, the board of directors, not great, uh, board of directors of WWE investigates hush money allegations against Vince. No. For a time, Vince. <laughs> Vince steps down as chairman and CEO. He's replaced by Stephanie, his daughter. Uh, actually. Yeah. Okay. I, I only say that tentatively um, because to, at this point, you got to explain real world story. <laughs> yeah, life. This, this real is real world. world. Story life. Okay. This is real world, but this is Vince's real world. So June 17th, they start the investigation. He steps down. Uh, then on June 22nd, he retires after keeping creative control, even though he said that he was stepping down. So he stepped down from these roles, but he was still head of creative. Now he retires basically a month later. Um, this doesn't last very long because January 6th, 2023, uh, Vince invades WWE headquarters, just like some other shit that happened on January 6th. This is a storyline with him showing it on camera? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, no, no. Oh, okay. It's just, it's... I can't tell at this point. It's reminiscent that January 6th is the time that he chooses to do this. Um, he announces his return to the company in order to start negotiating the media rights because all the media rights for Raw, SmackDown, and um, the network, uh. basically, are coming, or NXT, are coming up for bid. So he's trying to sell them out to the right things. Then all of a sudden, he hires JP Morgan to handle a possible sale. There was a million different companies. At one point, he was linked to the Saudis to sell it to the Saudis. He talked to Disney. He talked to fucking everybody. Warner Brothers, everybody he could talk to. He fished them out. This is like, no. Yep. And eventually, April 3rd, 2023, WWE is acquired by Endeavor. Uh, Endeavor had, they were the UFC's parent company at the time. They still are. Um, so once they merged into the conglomerate that they are today is TKO, WWE's valuation at the sale was $9.1 billion, $9.1 billion for wrestling. Yeah. And this was at a time when I, I didn't know that it went back this far, but WWE went public in 1999 to be publicly traded. So Vince is the majority shareholder mm-hmm. still own the company, but they had made a ton of money. Oh Yeah going during public. the stock offer, yeah. Um, so TKO Holding Groups completed the merger September 12th, 2023. They come on board, and they're the new governing body. Uh, as far as that goes, Triple H is basically kind of like running the day-to-day stuff. Which uh, is insane. Like, you're that it, that's reality. Because that could seem like a storyline, and I remember that being a storyline where he was like executive Triple H or something like that. Well... Because he... In the show, started dating Stephanie because they were dating in real... Did they start dating before or after? Yeah, this this will be a whole other Degeneration X episode if it comes up. Okay, but, but anyway... Trips is dating China, the, then he starts hooking up with Stephanie, the they do an on-screen... The in real life, and he marries her. They're actually married in real life, and now this wrestler 
is now like the head of the company. But at the same time, in true wrestling fashion, there were guys that were wrestling that became promoters. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's essentially following the path of wrestling. And knowing the business. Yeah. And so him knowing the business, he steps up. Vince goes on the board with TKO, so he's still kind of a part of it. Then all of a sudden, a very recent event happens. Um, January 2024, I believe it was January 24th. A woman named Janelle Grant, who was actually the reason that Vince had had to step down as chairman before because part of the board of directors was investigating claims made by Janelle. Out of those claims that were made, Vince had signed an NDA agreement with Janelle over the sexual assault allegations, and the NDA settlement payment was supposed to be $3 million. After Vince pays out the first $1 million, he just stops paying on the NDA. And Vince is worth funny, somewhere. Funny thing about NDAs <laughs> is they have to be satisfied by both sides. Yep. So if you stop paying, the NDA goes away. And I don't want to get into all the bad shit that's alleged. There's a lot of text messages from Vince to this woman that are pretty horrific, just terrible shit that you couldn't even imagine. But Vince is a billionaire and he couldn't afford to pay the extra $2 million. I'm not saying that this is right because what it's, he did is truly this horrid. Is karma. Yeah, but I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that you should ever do this. I'm not saying that an NDA in this situation is appropriate, but the devil's advocate here, if you have somebody sign an NDA and you know all the bad shit that they can spill on you, fucking pay the extra $2 million Mm -hmm. to get rid of it. Just shut up. Just fucking pay the money and don't have to deal with it anymore. Don't just stop paying because you think you're that big of a deal. You're upset at the stupidity of it. Yeah, that's what it is. I'm not, I I don't claim that Vince is a good man. I think he's one of the worst people, you know, that's come around in the entertainment business. But if you're going to be a fuckhead, at least figure out how to cover up your fuckheadery. Autodraft. Yeah, dude, just don't be so stupid. Um, January 6th, Vince resigns from the TKO board because I'm sure it wasn't voluntary. I'm sure TKO's like, nah, bro, get out of here. Which The Rock is now a part of. Yep. And The Rock came on board the same week that these allegations happened. We got to try to do something. Who can we hire to the board to completely blow this bad publicity out of the water? Yeah. And they did it before the allegations came out. So they had to have known in advance that Grant was going to go public with this, uh, lawsuit that Mm -hmm. she was bringing for the breaking of the NDA. Um, but yeah, as far as wrestling goes now, um, we talked about the $9.1 billion valuation when, in 2023, that's an incredibly large number. But when you look at the revenue stream and this is just how high it jumps, even recently, 2021, they went one point or I guess 1 billion, 90 million, $1.09 billion. Mm-hmm. 2022, $1.29 billion. They gained that much. They gained another $200 million over a year in their revenue. All the way to 2023, $1.33 billion. They added another, you know, however much that is, Mm -hmm. just over a year. And they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger that way. Whereas now what's happening, and I think this is sort of the play for Netflix, is they realize that TV ratings are looking worse and worse because people aren't consuming TV in the way that they TV. used to. I don't yeah. have streaming services. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have cable. Nielsen ratings aren't a fucking thing anymore, really. They're just getting worse and worse. So the transition to Netflix is a way to hide that, and it's an insane amount of money, and it's sort of a move towards the future because that's just where TV is going. Yeah. So whether they're hopping on something new, just like they did with Raw, just like they did with everything else, there's still that level of innovation in wrestling and WWE itself 
to try to become something bigger and stay ahead of the curve. Yeah. I mean, it's it's truly incredible just how much that it's grown from the CWC and just a boxing promoter working with an it's old... It's like we talked about the football, <laughs> or like the, yeah. the football. It's like when we talked about the NFL, how it was fucking founded out of an auto dealership <laughs> yep. and everything. It's just, it's it's cool to hear about this stuff because not only is this a batshit crazy story where I couldn't even separate fact from fiction, but the simple fact that it also falls along with something that is now known all over the world is a huge worldwide company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're everywhere. They they've been smart with their business dealings. Um, as they were opening up India, they put the title on an Indian wrestler and help promote it that way. Anywhere that they're opening a new market, they're going to try to do something to ingratiate themselves to those oh, people course. to try to grow the business. And again, this is a story that needs eight to 10 hours to tell everything. There's so much shit that I left out. If I missed anything, just understand I knew that it was there. I just, for time constraints, we had to keep moving. There will be plenty of episodes in the future. If there's anything that you guys really, really want to hear about, something that you think would be very interesting for everybody. Because again, not everybody's a wrestling fan, but I think there's enough meat in here of just crazy outlandish shit that they just it's make just for good episodes. Fucking interesting stories is what it is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for us on this episode. How you doing? You had a breath? Yeah, I, was, I need a cigarette. Yes, sleepy tie-tie. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for hanging in there with us, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.